What up, y'all? Welcome to Queer Walk, the podcast, the insurgent bi-weekly audio syllabus. Well, this this month, we're weekly, because shout out to Pride Month. I am Money, the lock fetish lesbian. Ooh, speaking of which, yours are very long and luxurious You know, these they're days. flourishing out here, you Indeed. know. Shout out to tea tree oil. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Nikita. And this week, I am Butch Boyardi. Let me tell you, <laughs> I made a marinara sauce from scratch the other day. This that shit surprised me. was so good. Queso fresco. So good. So. <laughs> Butch Boyardi? Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I gotta start coming up with better ones. <laughs> Yours always top mine. <laughs> well, it's a good thing the intro tops both of ours. So, drop the motherfucking intro. Your chocolate demeanor and your cocoa kisses. I see your flow from a distance. Your vibe inside my submission. I give you all of me. Wanna make you proud of me. We see the God in all you do. Your light is harmony. Every type, darkest night, brightest light. I'm loving your soul. They hate you, replace you, taint you, but know that you go. Worldwide from every continent. I just want you to jig a little bit. Move them hips, feel that bliss. Hug your sister, make a fist. Don't resist your temptation, you amazing, no limitation My favorite in this matrix, we move by your vibration And that's love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby you love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby you love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby you love You love I hope you hear that on the daily Right, Nikita, do you want to get into telling folks where they can find us? Yes, you all can find us on Instagram and on Twitter, where our handle is at QueerWalkPod. You can also find us on Facebook, QueerWalk colon the podcast. You can find us on Tumblr, where it all began, at QueerWalk.com. We know we've been neglecting you all mm-hmm. on the QueerWalk tumblr page we just revamped it the other day yes. and if i have to say so myself our about pages are They're so cute. cute yeah so go and check those out and in terms of where you can listen to this wonderful insurgent audio syllabus i'll tell you you can listen to us on google play soundcloud stitcher apple Podcasts, or Castbox. Mm-hmm. all right money mm-hmm as I always say, you and I are the hosts of this program, but we couldn't do it without the community. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us how Queer Walk listeners and other folks who are part of the Queer Walk community can contribute to this here community? I sure can. So, to help us sustain this here uh, program, you can contribute to the community in one of two ways. The first way is with your hard-earned coin. Skrilla. <laughs> anymore Nikita I'm trying to bring it back you gotta let it go so you can contribute like one time without any commitment at the cash app which is dollar sign queer walk pod pod or if you would like to become a sustainer and donate a little more consistently you can become a patron at patreon.com slash queer walk pod pod and I'll also say there's some perks to being a patron of Queer Walk. Not only do you get this bomb-ass, dope-ass, thorough-ass podcast bi-weekly, but I make what I have to say 
myself our bomb ass playlist uh shout out to all of the patrons who like liked and gave feedback to the pride month playlist you know, it was a collaborative effort. It I was. let Nikita have some input on this one. Some but. input. Very <laughs> limited. <laughs> but it's a really good playlist. So uh, if you want access to that exclusive Patreon content, go ahead and become a patron. Uh, we have some suggested donation uh, values that you can give over there. But you can give as much or as little as your pockets allow. Um, I think I said this on a previous episode, but I've been thinking about this as far as, like, things that I donate to. The Peace and Social Justice Center here has this, like, practice of you donate, like, an hour's worth of your wage to, like, a a cause. And so, you know, if you want to work for an hour, whatever that wage would be at your job, and contribute that to us, it would greatly be appreciated and help out over here. The second way, outside of your... um, Skrilla that you can contribute to Queer Walk (laughs) is by loving us out loud. You can do the R's, rate, review, request a topic, uh, please, repost, retweet, and reply to the episodes. You can use the hashtag QueerWOC or hashtag QueerWalkPod, P-O-D, because I know some folks use that to talk all things the podcast. Um, Send us an email if you want to send us something a little bit more personal, a little bit more intimate. A little bit Uh, more private. (laughs) At QueerWalkPod at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you're just trying to hit us up and maybe uh, get us flued out somewhere. It's QueerWalkPod at gmail.com. You can buy a t-shirt. We haven't said this in a minute, but we still have QueerWalk merch that you can purchase. Uh, The t-shirts are $20. We have two different designs. Give Me a Glucose Guardian is one of the designs. And The Mental Moment with Money is the other design. We have them available in black and queer walk yellow. We are all out of smalls. So we are so sorry to our small siblings. Um, but we have uh, mediums up through 2Xs. 2X. Yeah. So if you would like one of those, email us or just DM us and we can like work the details out and get one out to you. So yeah, love us out loud. All right, money. Are you ready to move it along to the Queer Pot, Queer Pot, Queer Pot of the Week? Yes, I am. You just drew yours out a little bit. No, I did not. Yes, you did. You are not having an influence on me. I think I am. So, Nikita, do you want to do the Queer Pot of the Week segment this week? Yes, I do. Okay, well, before you start... For those of you who, who don't know what this segment yeah, is. Yeah, and who might just like, who have might have just found us this Pride Month because we have, right. we've seen like a jump in like followers and we welcome you all first of all. Hey, how y'all doing? Bienvenidos. <laughs> um, and so for this segment, uh, Queer Walk, Queer Pac of the Week, we always highlight some baddie, some queer person of color who is just like fucking it up politically socially, academically, culturally, um, culturally yeah, yeah, who's just like making space for for us to exist in all of our beauty. So, Nikita, you want to get into the Queer Pock of the Week this week? Okay, so the Queer Pock of the Week this week is Monica Trinidad. So, I found out about Monica because Monica is one of two of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts called The, the Lit, Lit Review, Review. Mm-hmm. which is such a cute name. Yes. Um, so Monica's co-host is Paige May. Mm-hmm. And so together, they're both of them are from uh, Chicago. And so it's such a cute little title, The Lit Review. So they talk mm-hmm. about books and they do interviews with people who are activists, 
organizers, writers, cultural workers, you know, about the different uh, books or different works or projects that they're working on. So check out their podcast, The Lit Review, but more particular about Monica. So in addition to being host of an amazing, badass podcast, Monica is also an artist. And I love that Monica says <laughs> that they are a community taught artist. Yes. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, breaking through all these like elitist ideas of art. What it means to be an artist. Right. Yeah. And so in 2012, Monica also co-founded a Brown and Proud Press. Uh, it's a collective of people of color sharing personal narratives of struggle through the medium of zines. Uh, and if anybody knows anything about like queer history, like queer yeah. um, culture, like I feel like zines, especially like in the 90s mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. and in queer cultures and in like feminist cultures, zines are really um, important. important. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in this collective, you know, they use zines as a catalyst for collective healing and social change. Mm-hmm. So hence why we would, you know, be deeply in favor of that and support that here. That's what we do here. At, um, <laughs> collective queer healing work. and social change. Exactly. <laughs> Something that's also really important is that Monica was involved. I don't know if you remember this. It happened like a few years ago in 2014. So Monica was one of eight young organizers and activists of color who went to Geneva, Switzerland, yes, which is where this. you know the United Nations is. And so the collective or the group of people that went under a, a delegation called We Charge Genocide. So it's a grassroots group. And so We Charge Genocide staged a direct action inside of the um, United Nations. And, th- and in this particular instance, they were calling for uh, the UN to take notice and awareness of the fact that uh, Dominique Franklin was a 23-year-old black man uh, who was tased to death by the Chicago Police Department. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so because of the work of the gen- the We Charge Genocide delegation, the UN Committee Against Torture directly mentioned Chicago police violence against young people of color in their official observations highlighting police violence in Chicago, which which went to highlight police violence in Chicago on an international level. Right, right. So, I mean, that's amazing uh, that Monica was a part of that and uh, that whole effort in general. Monica also co-founded for the People Artists Collective, a radical squad of black artists and artists of color in Chicago who create work, you know, that uplifts and projects struggle, resistance, and survival within marginalized communities. Oh my God, this is so cute. And so one of the things that the For the People Artists Collective has done is created two radical coloring books entitled Color Me Rising. So what the artwork does is that it shows four large-scale campaigns challenging police violence in Chicago. And so... What else does Monica do? <laughs> what does Monica not do might okay. be an easier question right. to answer. And so Monica has created movement art for over 20 different grassroots organizations and efforts in Chicago. Uh, Monica's work has been shown, I don't know how to pronounce this, in the DuSable Museum mm-hmm. and the National Museum of Mexican Art. Oh so th- it's just so amazing mm-hmm. to see uh, Monica doing all of this, bringing in... And showing people why, like, culture is, like, a necessary part of resistance. Mm. So we just wanted to highlight Monica and, you know, just amplify all of the amazing work that they've been doing. And it's, like, for me as an organizer, I feel like Chicago especially serves as a beacon Um, of hope. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just so many um, young people of color like Monica who are not just, like, a part of like movements and organizing and organizations, but they've had a lot of really important victories. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. Out there. So mm-hmm. just shout out to Monica Trinidad. Go look up more of their uh, work. We'll post a link to their website in the... And also to the Lit Review Podcast. In the show notes. And that's mm-hmm. what I was going to say. Be sure to go check out um, the Lit Review Podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is always appropriate to say. I, I say it a lot, but Monica is also... Are you trying to shoot your shot? A baddie. Hey, Monica. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I'm, you know, I'm just, I try to find ways to, like, I mean, we, we uplift people for, like, lots of different reasons, right. but, you know, I think not all the time we get uh, affirmations about being little baddies out here on these streets, too. So just, Whatever you have to tell yourself <laughs> to, to justify, justify your body behavior, <laughs> by all means, continue. Okay. <laughs> All right, Nikita, we're going to move it on along to community contributors. Yeah. I'm not participating in that <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> oh, we need them dollars. I said I like it like that. Become a patron tomorrow. I said I like it like that. Get a shout out on Queer Walk. I said I like it like that. Community, yeah, it been I hot. said I like it like that. Hey. Okay, so we have a community contributor segment this episode that is Outrageous. Bursting yeah. at the seams. And I just love it's when it's robust. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just love when community contributors is popping because one, it's like, you know, this is what we do it for. It's sure. like, thank y'all so much for like making it such a rich segment. But also because it means that we have things to like do and listen to and watch and follow that are queer pop. Yeah. You know? And so let us put you on to something. <laughs> All right. So first, I want to go through world pride shenanigans that we are going to be partaking in. Or that we think y'all should be partaking in. It's a lot. So we're going to have to go back and forth. Okay. So me and Nikita are going to be in the city, meaning New York, New York City. Because you know what I realized? Like, what you refer to as the city is so local to what part of New York you're in. Because, like, growing up in Queens, like, when people said the city, they meant Manhattan. Manhattan. And then, like, upstate, when people say... It's the whole thing. When people say the city, they kind of just mean the... I Maybe Brooklyn and Manhattan. And so, yeah, we're just going to go through some stuff that we're going to, um, you know... Just, like, glide on through and tip on through. Indeed. Uh, and some stuff that y'all might be interested in as well. So, the first event on Thursday, June 27th at 3 p.m. at the New Museum, our homie. The esteemed <laughs> black queer fibrous artist, Dietrich Brackens, will be in conversation with Darnell Moore at the New Museum talking about their art. Yeah. Um, and so... Oh my gosh, I just feel like, how do we know each other? But <laughs> So, Diedrich is an amazing artist. Uh, I think we've put his, like, handle, yeah. his Instagram handle in the show notes before, but we'll definitely put it in again. He just installed a new collection at the new museum. And so, yeah, you can just take a look at his artwork at Deeds Weaves on, on Instagram. Instagram. And yeah, he's going to be talking about his work uh, with Darnell Moore. So, And for folks who don't know, Darnell Moore is a really fabulous and brilliant writer, organizer. I think he's based in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, the tickets are $18 if you don't have a like museum pass for yeah. New York City. And I'll put the link to get a ticket in the description for the episode. Um, yeah, so that's happening Thursday, June 27th at 3 o'clock. And then later that evening, same day, Thursday, June 27th at 6 p.m. And it runs until 10 p.m. So, you know, if you're a little late, it's fine. It's a four-hour event. There is an event at the Schomburg Center called After Stonewall, 50 Years of Black and Brown Resistance. And it's going to be a panel discussion. And what I'm guessing is just like a look, like a look through at black and brown, like art, uh, reflecting our resistance since the Stonewall Uprising. That sounds right. Yeah, and so this event is a free event because Schomburg events are free. But, yep, you can RSVP, though. So I'm going to put the RSVP link in the description. So I think they just want to get a sense of how many people are coming. Right. So, there y'all go. All right. Oh, sorry, I did... That's two. fine. Go ahead. You do too now. <laughs> so we, <laughs> I think we mentioned it on the last episode, but just a reminder that on Saturday, June 29th from 4 to 10, there's going to be a queer global fundraiser and the homies over at Marsha's Plate are also going to be doing a live show that night. And I love it that it says, oh, it's from 5 to 10 and it's, they, you you can dance until they kick you out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be at the Talon Bar in Brooklyn. And so we really want to encourage y'all to go. We're going to be there. It's mm-hmm. always it's always an experience to be blessed by the wisdom and the knowledge of the homies at Marsha's Plate. Yes. And that event is donations at the door. So whatever you can yeah. uh, contribute is much appreciated. It's a queer global fundraiser, y'all. So don't skimp on the community. Exactly. Oh, boy. So the next event is also on Saturday. So after, So after they kick you out. After they kick you out at the Queer Global Fundraiser... <laughs> then you're going to head your ass on over to the Brooklyn Boyhood World Pride Party. <laughs> and I got a little nervous because I see this one starts at 11 p.m. And it goes till 4 a.m. <laughs> that is late. Nikita, I'm going to buy you some pearls because you always clutching your metaphorical pearls. I just can't believe an event starts at 11. Well, you know, <laughs> the young hip queers, you know, I guess we're going to party like it's 1999. Anyway, again... 1969. Okay. Show up at 2 a.m. like Marsha. (laughs) So, uh, bring your bricks. No, I'm kidding. So, from 11 p.m. to 4 p.m. at Littlefield, and tickets are $20. And we talked about... What was that? They're $20 in advance. It's more at the door. So, So go ahead and get your ticket now. Get that link at Brooklyn Boyhood. B-K-L-Y-N-B-O-I-H-O-O-D. And so after, you know what? After you've partied till 4 a.m., you can, just don't even go to bed. Just don't go to sleep. Bring a change of clothes in a bag because we got another event for that ass. So on <laughs> Sunday, the 30th, uh, the Reclaim Pride Coalition is doing, a, they're doing a queer liberation march and rally. And so what they're doing is they're going the historic route of the first Pride Parade, which was the Chris, Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade. And so, uh, like like we mentioned on the last Pride, uh, on the last episode, the little mini-sode, you know, a lot of folks, especially during this Pride, are making it a, real, a priority to reclaim and go back to mm-hmm. those radical roots mm-hmm. of Pride. So that's what this event is going to be. And that's going to, again, the march is going to start. They're going to start gathering at 9.30, so. 9.30 in the morning. So, in the morning, So yeah. when you leave Littlefield from partying with Brooklyn Boyhood at yeah. 4 a.m. Maybe you just need a nap. <laughs> just get a quick nap in on the train on your way to the corner of 7th and Christopher. 
to meet at 9.30 to do the Queer Liberation March and Rally. And after you're done with the Queer Liberation March and Rally... Wait, this, you going through them all. Can I do one? No, come on. Let me just finish. I've already, I've already started. Head your ass to the Joy Day Party, which is more of my speed... Is it going to be your speed after this weekend, though? Oh, my God. Because you're basically not going to sleep from yeah. uh, Marsha's Plate live show until the day party. Uh, Someone's going to have to bring me back to Syracuse on a stretcher. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sunday, June 30th, there's going to be a joy day party. Tickets are $15, and it's going to be at The Well in Brooklyn. And that's also hosted by Brooklyn Boyhood. So the link for that will also be in the show. All these links to everything is going to be in the description of this episode. You can find all the links in people's uh, bios on Instagram as well, in case y'all are like, what? We know that's a lot of events. All of these details are in the description to the episode. So if y'all don't ever, like, look at the description, they're very thorough. It's basically like a newsletter that we be giving y'all. But we know we ran through a lot of events. So all of that, the address, the link to get your tickets in advance. Yeah. So get your coins together. Get your um, RSVPs together. And please, for the love of God, get yourself some sensible shoes. (laughs) Get you some Tevas. So... uh, So we know that, like, you know what I also like about this list of events is um, I know that especially in big cities, like, pride can get very expensive, like, real quick. Yeah. And all of these events are, like, under $20. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like, free and, and cheap events are, you know, so accessible and, like, so amazing, especially when we're talking about for queer Folks of color. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, just want to thank all of these organizers th- that put in the effort to put these events together and also, you know, for making them affordable. All right. So, since I gave the rundown of those last few events. You did. Money, can you tell us who our new patrons are? Yes. We have five new patrons to shout out this episode who have exclusive patron privileges to the content over exclusive. there. So, <laughs> shout out to them. Uh, so, Stephanie... Robert, Jay, and Iris all became new patrons. And also, Gabby became a new patron. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gabby. And shout out to Gabby Mm -hmm. for... that. It was so cute. So, Gabby replied to our last little mini-sode with these three great videos, just expounding and talking more about, you know... these laws against homosexuality in countries in the global south being vestiges of colonialism and comparing that to like a country like the US where it's like nobody says like or like a lot of the times no, the same people that was oh my god those people are so barbaric mm-hmm. for their like anti-gay laws are not saying the same thing about like the anti-lynching laws yep. you know in this country so mm-hmm. we that was such that was I was not expecting that kind of engagement. It was so cute and so fun to see a video. Yeah. So, so I really appreciated that. Head over to our Twitter, because Gab's videos are there. We retweeted. Yeah. So thank you, Gabby. You know? All right. All love. e and shit. I was about... All right. I forget you're in a sorority. Okay. I forget too. Shit. Mm. <laughs> all right. And also, we want to send a huge shout out to Rachel, who hit up the Cash App. And uh, told us to enjoy Pride. Thank so you thanks, so much. Rachel. We you hope do you the same. Yeah, we hope you have a great Pride as well. All right. So up next, um, this is like a thank you yeah. uh, in the community contributors, but we just wanted to send a huge thank you to Pocket Casts, which is a podcast app 
And they are celebrating Pride Month with a list of 16 podcasts that explore queer life and like different parts and like aspects and dimensions of what it means to be queer. Uh, and they put us on their LGBTQ, Q-U-E-U-E, <laughs> like up next. Um, and so we're on their Discover list. If you have Pocket Casts or if you're looking for a new app, I know we got like a message about Spotify, um, Spotify but also that people who don't have Apple Music oh. anymore, yeah, that you can listen to us on other apps too. And so Pocket Cast is one of them. Yes. And so, yeah, check us out there. And thank you so much, Pocket Cast, for like highlighting us and Indeed. putting us on there. Oh, you got a bitch feeling special. Yeah, that was nice. I was excited yeah. to see that. We we are also listed amongst like some really incredible podcasts. Yeah, so go too, be sure so. to check those out too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right. We also uh, want to send a huge thank you out to Daniel and Robert over at Grizzly Kiki. Learned about this podcast through the homies Tea with Queen and Jay. Uh, they were actually on an episode because. They, obviously, they're everywhere. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how we found out about this podcast. But they gave us such an incredible shout out on their last episode. And so we just wanted to say thank you so much. First of all, for like listening to us. Uh-huh. Um, and for talking about, so what they talked about is like when we talked about Quilt, Quilt Bang, Bang. And how it's, first of all, it's so much fun to say. It is, right? Yeah. Quilt Bang Gang. Grr. Uh, <laughs> and you know like what it means to have uh like different identities ordered differently yeah. in an acronym yeah. um what it says about our politics like yeah. order order um you know the acronym in a certain way and also your podcast is dope as shit um so so we just wanted to send a thank you and a shout out to you all yeah so thank you so much mm-hmm. to daniel and robert the co-hosts of grizzly kiki yeah and y'all check them out we'll put we'll make sure we put a link to their podcast i know they're not on soundcloud but they're on like all the other listening things so including google play for all of y'all sending shade to the droid users oh my okay God, let it go whatever Anything you can do, we can do with an app. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, way to really stick it to us. (laughs) All right. Okay, Nikita, um, we have any new reviews on what happens to be an Apple platform? Yes, we do. So, the first review is from Sad. So, it's like Sad with five Ds, (laughs) five, one, two. And Sad says, I am a black trans PhD student and this podcast helped me heal. It helped close the gap of theory talk and everyday survival. It brought me to true thriving. Thank you for your unapologetic slave. Yours in community, Victor Maroon Ultra Omni. So thank you so much, Victor. 512 is Austin, so... Coming out of Austin? Or is that just like random It, might, it also might be a it birthday. It could be a birthday, like yeah. May 12th. Yeah. Um, I just I just knew because South by Southwest right. and calling around for stuff in Austin. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for the review. We appreciate that. <laughs> and the next review comes from Lovesit39. Lovesit says, Nikita's educational lectures, in parentheses, lectures, not a bad word, are everything. <laughs> Pay these women. Ah! Yes! <laughs> My name is Nikita and I approve this message. <laughs> Pay us. You really are out here like a whole adjunct professor on this podcast, <laughs> Nikita. <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. <laughs> okay. Um, and you know, 
because SoundCloud has a special place in my heart, we'd love to shout out, like, you know, the cities who have come through in the top 10. But, you know, I'm not excited about this top 10, this episode. Because it's just the big, boring cities, you know, like Brooklyn, Chicago, Philly, all the places that have LA. these big ass, yeah. you know, pride celebrations and whatever. So yeah, the big city swept the top ten. Like all of our top ten cities are like the huge yeah. cities. So. so Medford, Massachusetts, Oxford, Ohio, <laughs> Cut and Shoot, Texas. Y'all need to come back. <laughs> come on through. Shout out to Lochapoca, Alabama. Natural <laughs> Toaches. I mean, come on. What happened to the small city? We need the small cities to come back through because the big cities, they literally swept the top 10. Yeah, they did. Yeah. (laughs) In all seriousness, we love and appreciate you all too. You you metro queers. (laughs) All right, moving on to the mental moment. (laughs) That's not funny. Can you introduce my segment? All right. Play my entrance music. Play your what? My entrance music. Oh my god. Okay. I demand to be treated like the queen that I am. Okay, your highness. <laughs> Moving on. I'm channeling electroabundance. Right I, I understand that this is a pose <laughs> reference. Anyway, moving on to my personal jingleless favorite segment The Mental Moment with Money. But let me just, we are weekly this, this month. So it's a lot for you to yeah, do a, yeah. multiple jingles. Yeah. Even though you didn't do a jingle last episode because it was a mini-sode and it was all topic and there was no mental moment. So you still technically had two weeks to do a jingle. You still didn't. Oh, sure. In, in the middle of doing in-depth research for the podcast, <laughs> trying to keep up an active and lively social media presence, sure. Yeah. Sure. You know. I'll just, I'll just get, put on my songwriting <laughs> hat too. <laughs> If Lizzo could do it, you could do it. But <laughs> you know what I was thinking? Like we do do the job of like five to seven people exactly for this this here program. You so. want me to? You want me to put on? Um, you want me to make an album? You want me to go on tour? But anyway, y'all. So in this segment, the mental moment with money, I try to give like tips and tricks for like communal and self healing and well being. And so this one is actually inspired by the community. So uh, I wanted to shout out two folks uh, that inspired this uh, mental moment. So the first is Batty Brigade member, <laughs> Rodeca of Inner Hole Uprising. Shout out to the hoes. Hey. Um, so I was listening to the hoes episode, uh, Bananas Hit the G-Spot. Ooh. Different. Or so, I, I should have looked up the exact name of the episode. But it's, if you type in bananas, hit the G spot. <laughs> um, the Inner Hole Uprising. It's one of their group episodes. And they were talking about like suggestions. Because uh, Sam's been doing this thing where she gives suggestions of like date ideas. Um, and Rodeca actually talked about her and her bae created this like a container where they put all these ideas for dates that they've been wanting to do or stuff that they wanted to try. And, like, they pull one out. like and then, every, and That then is do that. such a good idea. Isn't it cute? And so I was like, hmm, I'm about to take this and spend it and spin it and see how I can, like, apply it to, you know, healing and shit. And then also the other homie that inspired this mental moment is the international black feminist phenom boo, Makta. Hey, Makta. So, shout out to Makta. I love you so much. We got to catch up because she's back in Frankfurt and, you know, we miss each other. 
So thank you, WhatsApp, for making it possible for us to FaceTime since I have an Android. <laughs> you're not FaceTiming. Yes, you're, we you're are. Doing, you're WhatsApping or something. You, what you're doing is hating. <laughs> <laughs> and so, or truth-telling. <laughs> Go ahead. So, yeah, me and Makta were just like, you know, having real sibling talk about uh, what it means to, like, make it through the year. You know, it's like absolutely when you know this is the last stretch... And that you will finish writing your thesis and or dissertation this year. And then being so uncertain about what comes next. It's like, how do you keep yourself okay, right? And it's kind of what, what we talked about in our interview for today's episode. Mm. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, yeah, and so shout out to both of y'all, Rodeca and Makta, for helping me sort of like bring this together into a mental moment. So my mental moment this week is to make a care container. Okay. Okay, so I have mad jars in my house, so it doesn't have to be a jar. And y'all know I love alliteration, so I made it container. But um, mine is a jar. Uh, And so my idea for making this care container is exactly what Rodeca did with dates, but instead doing it with, like, self-care things. And also, like, thinking about what Makta said about, like, making it through the year. Like, having something that you can do to... uh, to write yourself into the next year. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, like I'm going to be here because I have to accomplish this shit. Right. And not just responsibility stuff, but but well-being stuff. All right? So I want to talk a little bit first about, like, four domains of self-care that you can write things down related to to put in your care container. Because I think a lot of times, you know, people just say self-care and then we move on as if we all know what self-care means. Yeah. Or, like, we all define it the same way. And we know that's not true. Okay, so there's four basic domains of self-care. Physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. So I'm going to talk about all four of those. Um, So the first, the physical domain of self-care. Have to stop here and shout out Dr. Shock or Sammy, who y'all will hear from in a little while. But I have rethought the way I think about physical self-care. Because usually I'll hop straight, straight to... The traditional way we talk about physical um, well-being, like exercise and all this stuff. But um, as I was writing this, I was thinking about maintaining body-mind well-being. Mm. And so, like, getting more sleep is not just something to do with your physical health, but it also has to do with your, like, mental and emotional well-being. You know, it's like, I always talk about this because it's it's just such the concrete thing we can do to take care of ourselves. But, like, sleep deprivation doesn't just impact, like, your... um, your appetite and like your energy levels, but it also mimics symptoms of depression. So it's like this body mind is not separate, right? right? So when we talk about taking care of ourselves physically, doing physical self care, it's not just for like muscles and fat loss and all that shit, but it's also for like our mind and like keeping ourselves okay. So that's the first domain. The second domain is emotional self-care. So when I talk about emotional self-care, what I mean is stress management and things that mature you emotionally. Ooh. So like you not you not hashtag team petty always. Oh <laughs> so emotional self-care can look like learning new ways to forgive, to be more compassionate, or to receive receive things like that. So how do you receive like apologies or thank yous, you know? So that's emotional well-being, like all the stress management and growing up emotionally. The third self-care domain is social. 
I talked about this on a previous episode, but a lot of the ways I think about social well-being is how do you form boundaries? Like, and making sure that you maintain and enforce those boundaries, not just letting them get all trampled over. Uh, Also, like, how are you supported and connected in life? Like, making sure you can name and list those ways. Um, And then, you know, obviously, social self-care has to do with, like, your time and connection with other people. The last domain of self-care is spiritual. Um, And so I think about the spiritual domain is, is basically the social domain, but for yourself. So time with yourself, time with nature, if you're like an earth sign like me. (laughs) Uh, Nikita's a non-believer so she just rolled her eyes doing that (laughs) spending time with your crystals your rocks your trinkets spending time in sacred spaces and places and then spending time reflection on on reflection and reflecting you know so that's spiritual if you want to make that about like values or your specific spiritual or religious practices like it could be that but it doesn't have to be it could just be how you spend time with yourself okay okay so we got it the four domains of self-care physical emotional social and spiritual and so my idea for making this care container i was gonna ask sorry you know i was gonna bring it back i just had to break down what self-care was first of course yeah okay i hope that makes sense of course all right so are you ready for a craft project, Nikita? I am. Okay. So you get a container. Okay. For me, it's gonna be a jar. Cause like I said, I got eight million jars. It in would my be house. the same for me. Mm-hmm. So you get a container and some paper. For me, it's gonna be like a whole bunch of different color uh pens. Maybe four. So I could have like the physical, emotional, social, oh, that's and spiritual. A good call. Yeah. And write down things you do currently, or that you want to do if you're struggling with self-care for yourself. So maybe you use blue for physical, green for emotional, pink for social, and red for spiritual. Okay. You know? Um, But just, you know, get some paper and write these things down. Then you cut it up into strips. You put it in your container. And you pull from the container when needed. But I know how I am. I will have all the tools and it'll just sit on my table collecting dust. And so I love mirror writing as like a a way of like setting goals and intentions for myself. And so I would write on my mirror, like pull from the jar three times this week. Okay. You know, just to like set a goal around actually using your care container. Right. And so, yeah, I wrote three because I feel like I could realistically make time three times a week to do something. Like I think about it, I have two off days from seeing clients a week, and then I have the weekend. So I'm like, I could do it three times. Okay. Uh, for you, it might be a, a a goal to just do it once. Like, I got one day where I could do this, so pull from your container one day a week. Yeah, y'all. If y'all make care containers, like, tag us in the photos I'm going to say, them. shoot a picture of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even maybe if you don't mind sharing, like, some of the things that you would write for your physical, emotional, social, and spiritual yeah. well-be- well-being. So, yeah, I hope this helps, y'all. This is such a great idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited. I already have my container. I just need to fill it up. Fill it up. Yeah. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. And now, our bi-weekly word from our wonderful womanist worker, wordsmith wizard, Nikita. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
bird. <laughs> okay. So Nikita's word segment is basically where she breaks down some social justice or movement-oriented terminology, developments, breaking news. Yeah. Um, the latest thing she's ranting on on her Twitter, yeah, which right. y'all need to follow my best friend at Afro Blazing Guns Pow Pow on Twitter because her her Twitter feed is just so. I feel like I understand more of like why something is fucked up, not just because you do hot takes on it. Right. You don't just do that's whack. Boom. Ah ah ah. What you do is. Here's the the uh, theoretical underpinning <laughs> of why this this is not a helpful critique, but you do it in a way that like I understand it. So yeah, I just wanted to tell y'all that's a shameless plug for Nikita's Twitter. Oh, you're gonna embarrass me. That means so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Oh boy. So shout out to one of our listeners who tagged us in this this study. So I'm not going to do a word, but there's this new report that came out. The listener is Sharon O'Laughlin. Sharon O'Laughlin. So O'Laughlin. shout out to Sharon. And so the report, the title of the article is 23% of young black women now identify as bisexual. You know, bisexuals win every Pride Month. And I just have to say, <laughs> as a monosexual, we got to step our game up. They win every Pride Month. They bisexuals just be winning. Like last year, I feel like there were all these like viral photos of like fly ass bisexuals, oh. and then this Pride Month here they come with they twenty three percent. It's so funny because I had I had looked at the I had like read through the article first, and then I was like, who wrote this? And then, so, it's by Tristan Bridges, and also, none other than Mignon Moore. Mignon R. Moore, okay? Lipsticks of Timberlands. <laughs> and it's so funny because money does, I mean, as, as y'all know, money does a lot of work around um, mental health and, like, black lesbians and, like, queer people, queer women of color. And when I was in school, I was interested in, like, political economy, labor, and, like, uh, black folks and mm-hmm. black queer folks. If you can't tell. Right. Surprise. But it was so funny because it's like we're in, of course, we're studying like the same people, but Mm -hmm. in two like different, different fields. Mm -hmm. And both of us, it was so funny because, and this, it's sad though, because it shows how, Mm -hmm. how little research there is on uh, black queer women, black lesbians and yeah, black queer folks. And it, we were doing two distinct different projects. And we were always running to Mignon Moore's work. Mm-hmm. And who else was it? Lisa Bowling. Lisa Bowling. That's we, it. Yeah. <laughs> we were just always running into um, the same articles and, yeah, journals. And we were doing, mm-hmm. like, two vastly different fields of study. So, yeah. they just, I was like, of course, of course, it's Mignon Moore. Who else? Who else would we be doing <laughs> So, there's a survey called the General Social Survey. And social scientists have been putting out this survey since 1972, and it just charts different kinds of social trends that happen mm-hmm. in the U.S. And so the survey is conducted every couple of years, and they ask, you know, the respondents about a range of different topics. And so, but in 2008, this is when they started to put in a survey question about sexual identity. And so it's really, um, we'll just kind of highlight some stuff from the article, because... 
It says that more women generally are reporting that they're bisexual, and but it was like it was black women in particular that were like disproportionately represented, like in that number, right? In in the in the overall general rate of women being bisexual, identifying as bisexual, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so and one of the things that the article says is that uh, so the twenty three percent of black women ages 18 to 34 identify as, as bisexual and that was three times higher than it was a decade ago so in the past 10 years the number of black women identifying as bisexual has tripled tripled yeah <laughs> and so um <laughs> quilt bang agenda is, <laughs> is sufficiently underway um <laughs> the, the status of the quilt bang agenda we're going swimmingly. <laughs> <laughs> so, of all the women, regardless of race, so in the 2018 survey, it was one in 18 identified as bisexual, and a decade ago, it was just one in 65. Wow! So it's like, so it's like quite a rise. So, so th- this is what I'm thinking. So it's the age group 18 to 34. So it's yeah. like you know, these are the young folk, right? Do you think that? It's become, in the past 10 years, it's become less, like, stigmatized to identify as bi? Or do people now have, like, more language to identify as bi? So, I think this is where it gets tricky. Because I I think, yes, I do think that there's been... I still think that there is, like, a lot of phobia, but a lot of biphobia. But I do think that there has been a shifting. Yes. Right? Like, I... Mm -hmm. like. I mean, I know a lot of fucked up ideas, like, still are, like, out there, but I feel like I've seen more of a concerted effort of people saying, you know, bi people are not just, like, either denying that they're either, that they're usually, you know, people say that, oh, you're just saying bi because you don't want to say that you're completely homosexual. So Uh I feel like I've seen more, like, debunking of that, and there's more debunking of the idea I see you know, that bi people are just promiscuous mm-hmm, and, like, all mm-hmm. these kind of things. It's, like, a real, like, it's a real identity, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, I'm not saying that those, like, ideas, that's bi- Are completely gone. Right, but, but I feel yeah. like I see more of a concerted effort at, um, like, combating that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this something else that you said. Um, language. Else. Like, I wonder about, so like, here, So, here's what's tricky, though, because here's how... Here's how it was asked on the survey, mm-hmm. right? So it says, so the survey question from the general social survey says, which of the following best describes you? And there's four different answers. So the first one is gay, lesbian, or homosexual. The second option is bisexual. The third option is heterosexual or straight. And the fourth option is don't know. And so there's 1,400 people that responded to the survey in 2018. So like... Only six out of those 1,400 people said, I don't know, and only 27 didn't respond at all. Oh, so they got a pretty good response to this question. Right. So I guess I'm wondering, so I guess for me, I'm thinking what would happen if they put, because this is kind of narrow, right? Mm-hmm, Gay, mm-hmm. lesbian, bisexual, or homosexual. So mm-hmm. I wonder, like, like what would what would be the difference if, like, if queer was an option? Mm-hmm, Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, if pansexual if was pan, an option. Right, right, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. right, right. So it's like give so the answers are constrained by the choices that were given. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I mean there's there's that there's that fact. Right, right, with. right. Survey problems. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. And so one of the things that but still though, like uh, I mean, that problem yes, like what you said is is real. But just to know that 
23, that's almost one in four black women clicked bisexual as their yeah, response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And bisexual, right. there's no ambiguity sure, sure, about sure. that term. Right. And, and as a choice, the other choices had gay, lesbian, or this, this, right. or bisexual was They're bisexual. They're getting too straight. It's, that, yeah. I, I, I they didn't, that they the didn't say they were straight. So, and again, this is, uh, that was specifically asking around sexual identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but there was another study done by uh, four or like four or five different other uh, researchers. And they asked a question about sexual practices. Okay. And so in that Into study. Identity, behavior, and desire. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in that study around sexual behavior, they found that young black women were more likely to engage in same-sex behavior than women and men in other racial and age groups. <laughs> I think I heard you right, but I just want to be sure. You want me to say it again? Yeah. you want to repeat it back to me? <laughs> that young black women are more likely to have, like, same-gender experiences yeah. than... People of any other racial or age group. Yes. Or racial or gender group. Yeah. <laughs> what do <are> you... <laughs> I don't know. I just... I feel like I'm just rubbing hands like Birdman for no reason. It's like... <laughs> because <laughs> you're like, wow. I'm like, well, the gay agenda. <laughs> you know, I feel like... I feel like Janelle Monae, uh, Janelle Monae probably accounts for... <laughs> <laughs> Between Janelle Monet and you, yeah. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Just out here. Uh... Spreading the good word. <laughs> um, and so I think that I don't have any answers, and it seems like... <laughs> what are you laughing at? I don't have any answers. No, let me finish. I was about to make a point, because one of the things that they're trying to grapple with is why. why right? Why? Why, mm-hmm. why is this a phenomenon within... Young because black, women, 18 black to women are always on the vanguard of everything, Touché. and we just know. It's actually it's so funny because in the article, oh, I want to find it. Where does it say it? And it was like, it says that like black women have. It was like, can we assume then, or can we draw the conclusion that like black women have like more advanced views on like gender and sexuality? <laughs> I'm not getting it right, but that's essentially what they were getting at. <laughs> so here's what they try to. Um, they're trying to grapple with. So here's some of the ideas that they put forward. They say that, um, so, I mean, there's the obvious point that they raise that, like, around just gender generally, that, like, mm-hmm. it's, there's, there's a certain kind of arguably more acceptance for women to kind of go, at, mm-hmm. go against sexual norms and gender norms versus men. And then there, there's this other point that I don't know what they mean by this, and I, because I haven't studied this literature, but there's this point about a shortage of men hypothesis, and that to me that doesn't feel like any kind of because they don't say what kind of men, right? They mm-hmm. they don't say. Um, I think that the what they're trying to say is that for whatever reason there's not enough like black men, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for me that doesn't feel like a a real answer. a real answer yeah. because I mean if mm-hmm. if you are let, let's say if you are like only. Like attracted to men, then you were just like not having men around isn't gonna be like, hmm, why not? Like, right, or 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 like black men, yeah, right? You would just be like, oh, well, I'm just gonna like date outside my race, date outside my race, yeah. So, um, I think also those like shortage of men hypothesis, uh, they they hypotheses they don't account for the fact that like young black girls are 
are the group of students that are pushed out of schools the most. And, like, also we know that incarceration rates for women of color are, like, ballooning through the roof. And so those shortages of men... What I'm trying to say is those shortages of men hypotheses always leave out, like, that that women of color, particularly, like, black and Latinx women, are impacted by these same systems that cause these, quote-unquote, shortage of men shit. Right. And so they say that another one of the uh, hypotheses, I guess, to that point... Is like, so because of the disproportionate high rates of incarceration among black men, uh, but what they point out in the article is that within the last decade, the incarceration incarceration rates of black men actually hasn't increased. It's decreased. Right. So that doesn't, so that, that doesn't actually account for it. I think. So what else? So all they said was the shortage of men hypothesis. So that's what they say. Yeah, they say this too might explain uh, why young black women in particular seem more willing to explore bisexuality. I don't think that that shortage of men hypothesis makes sense. I've, it doesn't. And I feel like it's something we've talked about over and over. I've Because I when you look at these kind of studies, you see, like I looked at another study like in preparation for this, and it showed that like the amount of people over the age of like 72 that identified... Mm-hmm. Anywhere along the spectrum was like below seven percent. Yeah, it was like seven percent or below. What I what I think is actually happening. Um, I a think generational. Something. I think that there's a broader. Because yep. there's a broader trend and uh, and people in that age group, mm-hmm. you know, in a group that we're included in, rethinking norms around gender and, and sexuality. Thank you, Nikita. Right. That doesn't help us explain why specifically black women, but I think all of these things around less marriageable men mm-hmm. or fewer mm-hmm. men, I don't think that they fully like help mm-hmm. us to get at that. They also don't get at like our excellence and our brilliance, right? So it's like, yes, what you just said feels like so much is also like praising of black women and femmes who are rethinking gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think why black women? Because I think we get policed and hurt by like these uh, narrow definitions of gender and sexuality yeah. often the most. So, yeah. I guess the thing, and this might be my own shit, but I think that I, I don't think that it is just, I don't have any men around, so I'm going to try women. I think that's what I'm, like, mm-hmm, trying mm-hmm, to... Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that it happens in that way, which and is why so I'm either. saying that... Which is why I've, I do think it is is this, like, changing ideas about mm-hmm. what we think of in terms of, like, identities, genders, and, you know, yeah. sexualities. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, oh, can't find no man. I yeah. think it's, like... That oh, also... Re- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just thinking, like, that also recenters like, heterosexuality as the norm. As the norm, the, yeah. Because I was thinking, the reason why I'm not bisexual, but the reason why I don't think it works like that is because I'm gay, and... I, I've been two years single now, and at no point over those two years have I yeah. been like, I can't find a bae, so I'm right. just going to date, see what these dudes talking about. Right, like, right, I'm right. not a tra- Yeah. So I, I like, mean, but the reality is, if you wake up one morning and it was like, I can't find any men, I'm going to go try women, that's all. That's, that's, that's valid, too. That's, that's fine, yeah. but what I'm saying is, I don't think that that... And welcome. Right. <laughs> Uh, your application has been uh, processed, and we are happy to... No, I'm kidding. Um... So I think so. I just so I that's kind of really what I'm trying to like but, speak back against. Yeah. But in terms of, I'm glad we said that because I I Cause don't. It does happen sometimes. Like, right, right, right. Everybody's queer experience is different. Sure. So even if you are like, wow, like uh, there's not enough 
if you do want to go with this like kind of ridiculous shortage of men hypothesis, mm-hmm. I feel like then you know you're like, oh well, who are the people who are most likely to have my same like values, politics, and blah 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 blah? It's like, oh, if I'm going to look within community, mm-hmm. and it's like, and if that person happens, yeah, happens to be of whatever gender, then, yeah, yeah, all right, mm-hmm. Shout out to that 23%. Yeah. No. <laughs> a big standing ovation, hand clap, I guess. <laughs> like, I don't know. Snaps and I and all of the things to yeah. bisexual black women. I would just like to have, I don't know. I, it would be interesting to see how they do more research on this. Because I don't, I don't have the answers. But I do want to try to see what they say through more research about why specifically young black women 18 to 34. Well, we're the most educated age I was age yeah, group by yeah. like by race, gender or age. I think I saw women. somewhere that said that 70% of all masters degrees amongst black people are held by black women. Yeah. And so, you know, I think about that like the more you know, the more you grow. And yeah. so like how that like process of attaining education, whether you know, like on sure, campus sure, sure. or off campus, you know, has you looking at things a different way. Yeah, there's, uh, there's only so much you can learn before you like. Eh. I mean, and it's so funny that you say that because it's like once, kind of to what we were saying earlier. I for for me, it was like once I started to learn that I was like, oh, I was like, this this don't make sense in society. Mm-hmm. That it just kind of mm-hmm. all just starts to winnow away. You're yep. like, oh, racism, oh, sexism, oh, all these, you know, yep. ideologies meant to justify my yep. oppression. It, it just it mm-hmm. totally does have you rethinking, yeah. yeah, like the world in exactly. different kind of ways. And you know what I'm also thinking? There's only so many Megan Thee Stallion videos you can see before, before you're like. Yeah. <laughs> what is she doing that video when she was trying that vegan burger? Not bad. Oh, here's, so here's a question. So here's a question, because mm-hmm. I think that would help us to try to get it. Is it that more black women are like, so is it, was it like, okay, if this was 20 years ago, I wouldn't have publicly identified. I wouldn't have self-identified. As bi? Right. But now there's like free, like, reign to, if, mm-hmm. or is it like. That's what I asked. That was my first question. Or yeah. is it like, kind of what we were talking about a minute ago. It's like. Well, up until most of my life, I had to consider myself straight. And it's like, no, I'm open. Yeah. Or is mm-hmm. it, do you, I, I wonder, is it? Probably is, both. Is that what it's it is? It's probably both and, not either yeah. or. Yeah. And I just, I, again, I keep going back to, like, black women are the shit. And so I think we, like, we just <laughs> see things more clearly. Like, there's, you know, like, there's just, like, a, um, there's a questioning that has to happen when you're just trying to exist as a black woman or a black girl. So, it's, like, in that, in that questioning of all these, like, societal standards and shit, there's, it's just, like, pulling a thread on a sweater. Once you start to pull that one, like, a lot of it unravels. And so, 23, 23% is almost a quarter. Yeah. That's, like, one in four. To me, that's like so. That's significant enough to speak to. Like, there's a there's a cultural something happening with black girls. We are just more willing to like question and let go of these i these uh, heteronormative ideas around dating and love because we get like 
pushed to the side the most by these things. Because mm. I was going to say, what about black women in comparison to other women of color? I think anti-blackness uh, is there within, even in like women of color communities. Uh-huh. And so... So how would that impact how they... So how does anti-blackness impact other women of color not identifying as like bisexual or queer more so because I think non-black women of color still get included Um. in these like heterosexual desirability categories in ways that black women don't especially dark skinned black women and so well shit not even in just like the the heterosexual desirability um, imagination of society but also in like the monosexual <laughs> queer desirability I, I'm using words that I made up y'all <laughs> what I mean is like um, like in lesbian communities or uh, I've seen it happen in gay guy communities too that non-black men and women of color get written as desirable get written as like ideal partners in ways that like black women just don't mm-hmm um, so when that happens, I think you just start to look at things in a different way. Like when you see I'm facing like racism from white supremacist spaces and queer spaces. And then I'm also facing anti-blackness and women of color spaces. Then you start to think about things differently. So I feel like you and I are saying something that actually wasn't accounted for in this study. So something I think that would be interesting because we're assuming and I, I would say rightly, mm-hmm. I think that we're assuming that bisexual black women are in terms of if they are in relationships with other women that those other women are black women and i i my mm. uh, my hypothesis is that mm. i think that we're right on that yeah but i don't i don't know the actual study yeah, right on that. we both are working off of that assumption and because that's what i was trying to get at with because that that was the, my long rambly way of talking about oh even though again it's problematic to use like straight black folks as you know, the the, yeah. the metric or the norm, mm. but if black people mm. are mm-hmm. usually most likely yeah. marrying or partnering like with other black people, yeah. then I would assume, and yeah. given my own experiences, given my own I would experience, assume that black women are. And I am doing empirical research currently that <laughs> that yes, that black women are partnered with black women. Yeah, even if you're like a multiracial black woman, yeah, like you're partnered with a black woman. Yeah, like yeah. Just looking at my dissertation sample, yes, because all of all of if because if that's the case, and again I think that it is, but I don't know for sure. Then I feel like all the things that we're saying would make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. This is amazing. This is exciting. It's exciting to see that <laughs> the wave of bisexuality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on um, this week in the gay agenda, <laughs> black women lead the vanguard in bisexuality. <laughs> All right, y'all. So this week's topic segment um, is actually an interview with professor, author, and Black Feminist Disability Studies Theories baddie, Dr. Sammy Shock. So where do we begin? I just don't <laughs> like, even know where uh, to begin. All right. So y'all know how we fangirl out about like the high priestesses or priesti? No priestesses. <laughs> Priestesses, I think. Priestesses of Queer Walk. (laughs) And Sammy is definitely one of those folks. So for those of y'all who might not be familiar with Sammy's work, um, we're going to like read a little bit of a bio. And there's also going to be all this information in the description. And we're going to post a link to her book as well. 
and her website where you can just learn more about what she's doing. Read so, more of her work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow her on Twitter. Please. Yeah. Dr. Sammy Shawk is an assistant professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her interdisciplinary research focuses broadly on disability, race, and gender in American literature and culture, but specifically focuses on African-American literature, speculative fiction, and feminist literatures. Dr. Shawk identifies as a fat, femme, black, queer, cisgender, non-disabled, middle-class, poly, body-positive, sex-positive, intersectional feminist woman. Um, So, me and Nikita talked to her about her Twitter presence, how she came to be the, like, black feminist disability Phenom that she is. Yes. Uh, her, Her latest book, which is called Body Minds, Reimagine, Disability, Race, and Gender in Black Women's Speculative Fiction. And we got, you know, a word, as we do when we interview uh, high priestesses of Queer Walk, about queer gurus. Like, so y'all, this was um, not only an interview that made me think about disability studies and Mm -hmm. also, like, the the black feminists that we look towards and how they talked about disability made me think about that differently. But it just also made me think about um, like I said, in the mental moment, like what it means to be like physically well, right? To think about body mind and mm-hmm. not just like the the physicality of our being, yeah. you know. Um, something else that I really like that Dr. Sammy said on her website, I'm not sure if we got to it in the interview, was about like not yet being disabled. Yeah. Um, because I think unlike other social identities and the way we talk about them, at least. Like, disability is something that a lot of us will experience either, like, temporarily, like, if you break a leg or right. something, but also as we age yeah, and, like, get older. It's just the, it's the, it's like the one category where, like, there's still a potential, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, for you to, like, experience yeah. disability or to be a disabled person. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I just, you know, fucking love, <laughs> like, this bridge work. Yeah. That um, which is one of the reasons why I love so much like women and gender studies, but definitely Dr. Sammy's work of bridging black feminist theory and uh, disability studies and queer, yeah, I guess queer theory too. Yeah. So yeah. So we're gonna get into that interview, yes. and we really hope y'all enjoy it. Let us know what you think by using the hashtag QueerWOC or QueerWOCPOD. Yep. All right. So let's get into it. So, Dr. Sammy Shock, can you tell us your origin story? You know we're some nerds and we love superhero things here, mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think for my origin story, the thing that I like to tell folks is I was raised in small town Kentucky by white Catholic people. Um, so I started in a place that didn't, didn't know what to do with me, never knew what to do with me. Um, and it took leaving and going to college to start to really figure my stuff out. Um, but yeah, I was raised by white Catholic folks and knew pretty early on that I didn't quite fit in with the small town Catholic environment, um, raised by a single mother. So never thought that I was going to get married or have kids. It wasn't a thing that 
occurred to me to do and everyone else around me was on that path um so yeah I left I left Kentucky right away for college went to the place that would give me the most money to go there because no one else is going to pay for that shit um (laughs) so I (laughs) went to Miami of Ohio um which is this really small uh not well I guess not super small but it's a public school that they call themselves a public ivy um and I think a couple times I saw y'all a couple episodes ago you said Oxford Ohio was in your top list that's where Miami is so yeah Miami of Ohio so I think maybe somebody assigned their class to listen to to (laughs) podcast or something because that's all that's there is that university um so I went there and that's when I really like came into myself I found gender and women's studies I started working at the women's center there where I got to just you know sit at a desk and hand out condoms Mm. like that was my job. I was like, I don't know why people are paying me for this, but this is great. (laughs) Um, And that's where I really came into like my queerness to political blackness, um, really started to figure myself out there. And yeah, from there went on to get an MFA in creative writing. And then I got my PhD in gender studies in 2014 um, at Indiana University and have since had a couple different jobs. But now I work at University of Wisconsin-Madison um, and I'm trying to trying to make a life in Madison now. I feel like we were talking about full circle moments. There's a lot of those places that you named that I'm just like, oh, connection. Oh, connection. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I've lived all over the place, Mm -hmm. um, but I really am trying to to stop moving. But I'm sure, you know, academic job market, right? You go where the jobs are and there aren't a lot Mm -hmm. um, and especially working in, you know, in disability studies and in gender studies. It's not like, you know, if I teach, I don't know, 1950s American literature or something, (laughs) like you can get more jobs in a general thing, I think. But I have a very specific interest. (laughs) But you you are like, you're living what I'm trying to get to with with my uh, PhD journey. And so... Part of, like, hearing about your origin story, like, we're going to dive into it later. I I love to hear more about the, like, personal and identity parts. But I'm really curious about how you were able to, um, like, map out this PhD in gender and women's studies path. Mm. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, especially even as, like, undergrads or however we come to, like, gender and women's studies, like, you don't really see, okay, how can I have this? as my job and you know right now next year I'm gonna go on the job market so yeah. I'm like how you do it girl <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I mean I not a lot of people went in my family went to college so I didn't know that this was even a job you could do yeah. um and I often have moments where I'm like I can't believe that this is my job like this right. is incredible right. um I feel very very grateful um that I have it but I think part of it for me was um it was never about the degree, right? It was like what I wanted to do. And what yes. I wanted to do was write and teach and make a 
positive impact on the world. And I didn't know how I was going to do that. Um, so for a while, I thought I was going to work for nonprofits and teach mm -hmm. creative writing. Um, for a long time during grad school, I taught creative writing in nonprofit spaces. So I worked for a feminist nonprofit where I taught summer writing camps for girls. I worked wow. at um, a juvenile detention center, a homeless shelter, a domestic violence shelter, just teaching creative writing classes on a volunteer basis because that's for me what I wanted to do was like help people find their voices and use writing in a positive way mm -hmm. um and I really did not think that I wanted to teach at the college level and it was going to grad school so when I started my PhD I only applied to four um PhD programs mm -hmm. Because I was, I had just finished an MFA at Notre Dame of all places, um, which I went to work with Cornelius Eady, who's this amazing black poet, but otherwise it was really a white space. Yeah. And I had a pretty miserable time <laughs> in my MFA. And so I was like, you know what, I'm only going to apply to schools that I, I think I will really be happy at. Mm -hmm. And if I get in, I get in. If I don't, I, I don't. I like, that, that was my attitude about mm -hmm. it. It was like, I'm just going to let the universe take this one. Um, and I applied to four programs, and I got into two. Um, and I decided on Indiana because it was it made the most financial sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, like, a lot of my choices have been based on a little bit on Money. survival. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. about to go into all this debt for something that might not pay off. Right, um, right. So I went to Bloomington because in Bloomington, Indiana, I could live on a graduate yep, stipend yep. and actually have my own apartment like, mm -hmm. and be okay versus the other school I got to was in Chicago and they were offering the same amount of money. And I was like, I would live in a box in exactly, Chicago for this exactly, much money. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I went to Indiana um, and I was really well supported. I worked with LaMonda Horton Stallings, um, who is this amazing black queer feminist scholar. Um, and she really looked out for me the whole time um, from start to finish in my Ph.D. program. Um, she was a real tough love mentor. She's the kind of person that will note all the things that are wrong on the thing you turned in and never say anything nice about it. Mm -hmm. But if you have like three pages with no comments, you knew that that was okay. good. Like you knew that that's a solid three pages right there because she had nothing to say mm -hmm. about it. Um, and she, from the start, was real clear that she was like, you have to be prepared to be a black queer person mm -hmm. in this space, uh, which means that you can't act up the way these other grad students are acting mm -hmm. up. Like, you have to be, you know, twice as good, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we had a plan from really early on. I want to say my first semester, she just laid it out like, you're going to go to this many conferences. We're going to try to have a publication by this date. Oh my and gosh. she just help me set those goals. And then I, I hustled to meet them. So by the time I finish, I did my degree, I did my PhD uh, in four years, because she also wanted to leave. Yeah. So she was like, we're gonna need to do this fast. Wow. Um, and yeah, I just I pushed through coursework pretty quickly. And then I wrote my dissertation, um, basically in a year. Um, on, but I was on fellowship, which I heard you were on fellowship or you're going to be, um, this summer. Yeah. For the summer. So it's, <laughs> I got it's like a, three months. <laughs> oh, it's still, it's a gift, right. To yeah. have that. 
I I really hustled through that summer, mm-hmm. but I got I got a full year, which was incredible to have yeah. a year mm-hmm. um, to just write yeah. and and be on the job market. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I had I've had really really amazing, particularly Black queer mentors mm-hmm. um, in in gender studies. So Marlon Bailey, who does work on ball culture, was also at IU when I was there and he was on my committee. Um, And so I've just had these folks who have made really clear, like, you're going to have to do this race labor and this like gendered labor everywhere you go. And so they were very clear that I needed to make sure I was being paid, like know your value to this space Mm because they're making money off the fact that you're there there and you're different than everybody else. And it's, it's so true. I mean, you know, I'm a black queer woman, but I also work in disability studies. So I get asked to do pretty much anything related to diversity. I'm going to get get asked because I, I check all of those boxes. So Nikita actually had like a question like about that. Yeah. So, um, People should check out um, a lot of your writings on your page, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but in particular, in your essay, uh, "Coming to Claim Crip," you talk uh, you talk about being, you know, a black queer fat woman who's not disabled, and how you came to disability studies. So, can you can you share with us like how you came uh, as a person, and I think how you phrased it, uh, I thought was really important. And you're like. Not just as a person who's um, not disabled, but like not yet disabled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so how did how did you come um, to the work? Yeah. So I came to disability studies purely by accident. Um, I was a women's studies major in undergrad, and there was a class that fit my schedule. And you know, I was working, so anytime something was like a night class, I was on it. Um, and so I was taking this night class that was called Women and Disability as an elective for my women's studies major. Um, and I was 19. So I had like just started really being out to my friends, not to my family. Um, but I was out to my friends and I was like out on campus. And so at that point, I was like, I'm a black girl woman. I know everything there is to know about oppression, obviously. <laughs> um, like I've got this on lock. And then I got into that class and I just had this moment of like, oh, shit. I don't know something (laughs) like there's something I don't know. Um, And for me, it was I and I the way I tell the people is like, I had this moment like, is this what white people feel like when they find out about white privilege? Because I don't like this feeling like this is a bad, this is a bad feeling to realize that I had been so completely unaware of this privilege that I held of this oppression that existed. Um, And so I really felt like I had to invest if I was going to keep asking people to be white allies and straight allies and male allies, uh, I was going to need to step up my own game and learn how to be an ally. Um, And the more that I learned, the more that I realized how overlapping and, you know, as I say, in academic work mutually constitutive right that they create each other these kind of oppressions they rely upon each other they inform each other 
And so as a black queer woman and a fat person, like I saw all the ways that, you know, we talk about in disability studies that the environment is created for certain bodies over others. And as a fat person, I definitely know that, right? I know that um, spaces are not created for my body, that I know every time I walk down a plain aisle and like my ass is rubbing against like every other person, I'm like, oops, sorry, oops, sorry. (laughs) Like, it's not my body's fault. Like that space was not made for me. And so there were all these things in thinking about disability studies and the marginalization of certain bodies and minds, right, that just completely related. And of course, concepts of disability have been used against women and people of color and queer people, right? Like homosexuality was in the DSM. Um, These things have always been deeply um, interconnected and overlapping. And so for me, as soon as I realized that um, disability studies really became a primary lens for me to do any thinking. So I was in undergrad, you know, when I first found it and ended up being a minor in disability studies. I did my senior thesis in disability studies. Um, And then when I applied for my graduate programs, I made sure that I went somewhere that would support me doing disability studies work. Wow. I'm just thinking about like intentionality and like every step of your um, like movement has been so intentional. Yeah, it's like, damn, I wish I would have done that. I feel like I was, I feel like I was just fumbling through. <laughs> well, I've always been very type A. Like I've always had a plan. You know, I as soon as I got to college, I made a four year plan of like all the classes that I needed to take and the like the programs I wanted to apply for. I've been. I, I love a good plan. I When I started my first job, I made a five-year plan to tenure immediately. Like, I just, I love a plan. I'm very type A. Um, so I've always had some kind of short-term plan for, like, the thing that I'm doing. Um, but now I'm in this interesting place where I'm going up for tenure in the fall. And it's going to be the first time in my life where there's not a clear plan you know, because I mm-hmm. went straight through. Yeah. Um, so I've always been in school or on the tenure track, which also had a clear plan yep. of like, write this book, write these many mm-hmm. articles. Mm-hmm. And soon there's not going to be that. And so I'm spending some time this summer. I got a new therapist um, and just trying to like figure out what it means to do this work when I have the freedom to do whatever I want with it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And that's a, it's like a pretty powerful feeling that also is a little scary because I, I've never had that kind of f- freedom with security. Mm, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Because there are times where I've had freedom to make choices, but I didn't have like financial security. So there were only so many choices I could make. Yeah, but now I'm like, oh, I have security and, and freedom. freedom. Yeah. That's, a, that's a combination. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Go ahead, money. Oh, I was just, um, I feel like I'm kind of going to back up, but I just wanted to know a little bit more. So uh, as you were talking about like how you came to um, like disability studies work and uh, and stuff, I was thinking about like the language you use in your work mm-hmm. and the difference between like disability studies and crip studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can you just like say a little bit about that? Because especially because, you know, we love terminology over here and we want to like define terms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So 
disability studies um, really started as a field the way that we would understand it um, in the 90s as a way of disabled people kind of taking back the study of disability from the medical community mm-hmm. um, and and really orienting it towards humanities. So it became, you know, finding disabled people in, in theater and in old literature yes. and really just being like disability exists throughout history um, yeah. and disabled people have existed but crip theory emerged um more in the early 2000s and it's modeled more after queer theory um Mm. and so crip theory kind of pushes the edges of disability in some way um i think it leans towards more theories of the body and non-normality quite broadly um and for me crip theory is really essential because it leans into the things that have not always been recognized as disability and disability studies. So for me, things like diabetes and AIDS um, and other kind of chronic illnesses that were not always considered um, central to the field at all. Um, but crip theory kind of lets us do this to just think about how do we determine what bodies we value and don't value right. and why. Um, and Alison Kafer um, in her book, Feminist Queer Crip, talks about how the the things that have often been on the margins of what we consider disability and disability studies more traditionally are also the things that most impact people of color, people in poverty. Exactly. I was just about to say that. Right? And so I am really invested now in thinking about crip theory as essential to any study of race and disability because the way that we have to talk about disability and health and illness um, within um, Black communities, but also I think within queer communities, is just different than the general population. And yep. disability studies has just traditionally been so, so very white. Yeah. And I think that's kind of really the goal of like all of my work is to be like, so this thing that we do in disability studies, uh, does it work in Black mm-hmm, spaces? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. And if it doesn't, what does that say about the field? What do we have to change about the field to really uh, be able to say, no, this is a white disability studies concept and it's fine. You can study white people, but you should say this is based on white that. people's literature. This is based on white people's experience of disability and it might not apply yes. to all disabled people. Yeah. That mm-hmm. and yeah. like even just even because at the minute you just use those examples of like diabetes mm-hmm. and like you know I mean, I, I was like oh yeah. like it's funny because it's like it, like I don't think about those as disabilities but as as soon as you said it I was like oh but that's you know I'm like mm-hmm. you know I, you say d- diabetes I'm like oh black folks yeah and it's just sugar right yeah absolutely and. And for black folks and and poor folks, right, like diabetes and HIV, you are also less likely to have quality medical care, which means you're more likely to have secondary disabling conditions, right? right? Like mm. black folks are more likely to lose a limb as diabetics than white folks are. So that too, right, the way that we read disability in these communities, um, it's just going to look different and be understood differently um 
it's a real tension, I think, in disability studies because there's an emphasis on disability pride and disability identity, which I think more people are accepting more widely. But I also... Um, for me, it's really important to think about why some communities of color might not have disability pride and disability identity and still be doing really important political work around disability and health. Um, it just looks different than um, a disability pride kind of thing. And if your disability is emerging from um, lack of medical care yeah. or domestic mm -hmm. violence, right? There's a different way that you understand that than if you're born with a disability, if it happens just by like an accident, a pure accident, uh, like a car accident versus, oh, you have been either subjected to violence or neglected by the state. Wow. I'm just... Nikita just, just made I, a I, hashtag I, bars face. I just feel like my, my brain... <laughs> what did you say in, in one of our recent episodes? I feel like you just blew the roof off yeah, my yeah. brain because... <laughs> Um, just like what this, how this like helps us to expand how to think about things conceptually. Cause it's like, yeah. I didn't even think about like, if you're, if you're a survivor or somebody who's experienced like domestic violence mm -hmm. and like that's caused you certain kind of like pain or ailments. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't even think about that as like, like that, like domestic violence is like, is a disabling force. Yes. And I, I've never mm -hmm. thought about it in those terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, and that we're not just talking about physically, right? We're also talking about people having uh, mental disabilities and yes, PTSD I, I and trauma, yeah. right? Panic. So yeah. there's this real tension where in disability studies, they've tried to push back on the idea that all disability is inherently negative or traumatic. And I think that's important. But then there is, we still don't have a really good way to talk about disability that emerges from trauma in a way that is not like you have to claim it with pride. Like, how do we at once acknowledge this came from trauma, but also fully support folks as disabled people to deal with whatever like body mind changes have happened because of this trauma? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's where. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, this is like a good, because you just used the term, and this is uh, one of the questions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that we have for you. So can you explain more about uh, this concept of uh, body-mind and why, why you think it's an important uh, conceptual contribution? Yeah, so it's it's not my term. Um, I use it in my book, but it, it comes from a long line of thinkers, but I, I draw it directly from Margaret Price, who is one of my favorite disability studies um, scholars. She's a feminist scholar, and she works on um, psychiatric and mental disability. Um, and so she uses it to really think about, think of it as a feminist material concept about the way that what we typically think of as mind and body are not separate, right? They are reliant upon each other. They inform one another. They're imbricated um, in certain ways. And so the reasons that I think that using that term is important and not just using it as a replacement for mind and body, but really trying to think about the way that these are inseparable um, is one, when we're thinking about disabilities, something like depression that we think of as a mental 
disability, yeah. right? It has real physical yeah, effects yeah, yeah. on the body, mm-hmm. unquestionably so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we think about the relationship of our body minds to the world, if you are, if you have a physical disability that is causing you chronic pain, that also is going to affect your mental, mental state yeah. and your mood mm-hmm. or your ability to focus, right? These are not not separable things. So really understanding them as together, um, I think is important. But then when we're thinking about, for me, um, race and disability, uh, I also think it's important to think about the stuff that we're starting to learn about inter intergenerational trauma um, and the way that that also has mind and body impacts. Um, so for me, thinking about using the term body minds is really important. I try to use it all the time unless I really am trying to talk about something where like in society we think of these things as separate. So then I'll just talk about the mind. But like, really, we know these things are not separable. We know that we have to take care of ourselves holistically like we know plenty of folks well I know plenty of folks who look great and are physically good but they got their minds they gotta fix that up (laughs) they gotta work on that so I'm like you guess sometimes you gotta work out your brain too um gotta take care of it all so uh yeah I think it's really important to think of them together um and then you know in my in my book because I talk about science fiction then there are also times in science fiction where the mind and body blend in ways that we don't expect in our typical reality. So it's also yes. useful term for, for science fiction. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you know, I'm just like, I'm such a sci-fi fantasy nerd and just, like, yeah. <laughs> I love all things. Like, and I think in reading your book, all I kept thinking is, uh, mo- some, so many of my favorite, uh, superheroes are, folks with disabilities mm-hmm. you know and like i don't think people ever think about that when we're like watching the avengers it's like oh like that's a person with a disability you mm-hmm. know like saving the world and um you know i won't say dr strange <laughs> dr strange like one of my favorite you know and it's like yeah like damn that's a that's a person with a disability and we don't ever like foreground that in our thinking of like superheroes yeah um but, but it but it also made me think about how um I don't know, just like overlap, right? And connection and the more more information we can get from from like uh, doing this bridge work that your book is doing with like thinking about Octavia Butler as like a, a black feminist theorist, mm-hmm. but also as like a disability studies theorist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess that's my long-winded way of saying like, why do you think that there's uh, not that much like, written overlap between like black feminist theory and disability studies yeah um and why that work is necessary yes yeah i mean it's why i got into it right because Mm -hmm. i was already a a women's studies major in undergrad and I was taking all these black feminist theory classes and intersectionality was the thing that made the most sense to me. I was like, Oh yeah, obviously like it, I don't know. I, there's never been anything that I've read quite like when I took my black feminist theory class and it just helped make sense of so many things. And then I took this disability studies class and I was like, wait, Mm -hmm. that's never in the list. It's never in the list. Um, 
And yet, even though it's not named as disability, when I go back and I look at some of the early collections by black women, there's all this stuff about health. There's all this stuff, right? But sometimes it's, it's named as lupus, for example, right? Like they're naming specific disabilities, diseases, um, illnesses, um, or they're talking about access to healthcare, like access to medical care. Um, so it's not that disability and health isn't in there, but it's in there differently. Um, so that's what the the book that I'm working on now is really trying to make this argument that actually Black folks have been doing work, disability political work for a long time. Yes. They're just not yes. doing it in the same way as the mainstream white disability studies movement and not using the same language. Yes. So we don't look at it that way um so i'm looking at for the the book that i'm working on i'm looking at the black panthers and the national black women's health project and really looking at their health activism as black disability politics Mm -hmm. that no one is calling black disability politics and to me i feel like this is this is such an important black feminist intervention Intervention, because this is i feel like this is like a crux of black feminism, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I remember when I read, um, like, Patricia Hill Collins' Black Feminist Thought, and like, mm-hmm. of course, Sojourner Truth, like, Sojourner Harriet Truth. Tubman didn't yeah. say that they were black feminists, but it's like, going back and thinking about, you know, thinking about what they were saying and the work that they were yes. doing and how that is, like, foundational to, like, black feminist principles, mm-hmm, I feel like mm-hmm. you're doing the same thing mm-hmm. um, with, like, saying, okay, like, you know, Black Black Panthers and, like, you know, the National uh, Black Health Project, women's uh, Black Women's Health Project that you're talking about, they're not saying, look, that's doing disability studies work, but it's like, if you understand, you know, you if you understand these things, like, you know, in, yes. in terms of the concept, you're like, this is how yeah. it aligns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They were just always articulating it as primarily through a lens of race and responding to yeah. the violence of racism, but... it was about Mm -hmm. disability and black disabled people. Um, So I, yeah, I think that we just don't look at it through that lens. And I think, you know, again, disability studies is really white. So a large part of it is there just aren't people who I think have the same investment in black activism and black history and black theory to go and look at existing work to be like, Oh, disability is here. It's just no one in the field has bothered to look at it it very closely because it's not their field of expertise, Mm -hmm. right? They're coming out of an English program or a Mm -hmm. gender studies program where that's not their Mm -hmm. primary focus. We don't have folks like in AFAM studies programs taking up disability studies yet. Um, And there are folks who have been trying to do this for years. Um, There's like National Black Disability Coalition work. Like there are people who are doing the work um, in terms of activists, um, but much less so in terms of scholars so far, um, which has been, it's been a really surreal experience. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons I think going back money, you were asking about how I got here. Part of it was I was doing this work and no one else was really doing it yet. Um, And I was also a black person in a really white field that wanted to be better about racial diversity, but didn't really know how. So people really 
took me in and were trying to support me from the start because I, they didn't, no one else was doing it. Um, and now there are more of us, but I can still, you know, count on one hand, the folks that are really regularly publishing and doing research in black disability studies. Um, and so it's, it's strange to be so early in my career, but still to be kind of at the forefront of it because there's not enough of us. So my goal with kind of where I am now is to start start to get more folks doing AFAM studies and critical race theory to do disability studies rather than trying to get more disability studies people right. to do race, yeah. if yeah. that makes yes. sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, you yeah. just have me thinking about, like, even, even I think, like, the Black feminists, like, foremothers and scholars that, like, everybody points to and how much they did talk about, like disability and like body mind stuff and that it doesn't get named as that absolutely like, even their own experience their I'm like, own experience i'm like audrey lord the cancer journal yes and yeah. i'm like and i was mm-hmm. just so it's like audrey lord june, june Jordan. Jordan. tony k bombard mm-hmm. i'm like yeah, how yeah. is it that so many of our black feminist foremothers yep. have like died yeah. because of cancer and yep. you know we mentioned um you know you said that you found out about our podcast or the first one you listened to was like APG and it's like yeah. Alexis Pauline Gums I'm sorry I don't yeah. know her like that to just be referring to her Lex. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know like that one of the things that always resonates with money and I about the shape of my impact I'm like Audrey Lord didn't have health care dying of yeah. cancer and yep. it's like and again it's like yeah. you know your intervention and the intervention yeah. that like folks you know like you are doing is like really mm-hmm. important in helping us to um not just like reframe, but I think even broaden our analyses. It's also making me think about your work as like uh, say the same when we talk to APG about is it, like this time travel work and like how somebody like Sojourner Truth get that ain't our woman speech gets to like speak differently through through work like your like your work because now I'm thinking about it and it's not I think I've always thought about ain't our woman in this like. Um, queer gendered way you know it's like she's she's making this like argument as someone who has a black experience and a woman's experience is like all these things that you have as markers of womanhood I also have mm-hmm. but you don't consider me to be a woman mm-hmm. right and um, but there's also these parts of that speech that are so uh, about like physicality and like ability oh. you know it's like I can I can like uh, hoe a field. I can do these things like physically, and so that stops a man from like laying down his jacket for me, mm-hmm. or or like how blackness becomes like this, uh, um, like cap to ability. You know, it's like oh, you don't think I can do it because I'm black, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, just like I don't know, the re reimagining all these like black feminists or like Harriet Tubman. They I, isn't there a so there's a, a there's I think it's like a collective, the Harriet Tubman collective, and they and so it just makes me think about like Harriet Tubman and how they how folks said that she was prone to like certain kind of spells, and so I think yeah. I don't know what the what we understand um, that disability to be today was it like, yeah. she have like seizures yeah. or something, and mm-hmm. it's like again going back and re- going back and understanding you know these like people who are important to us and again within these. Um, within these reframings or these broader like conceptualizations, like mm-hmm. it just makes us think about um, not just our history, like in different kind of ways, but um, 
I just it helps us to think about who's um who who has contributed to our history. Yes, and, yeah. in meaningful ways, and so yeah. I'm so rich. I think all, yeah. both of us are our minds are just ex- exploding yeah, we, right now. I'm sorry. Like, we, and we we're just like, like vomiting it all at you right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, with Harriet Tubman, uh, the narrative that I, I've heard is that, yeah, she was hit in the head with a cast iron, like, right. pan. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, had these, like, seizures or, like, sleeping spells. So somewhere between, like, narcolepsy, epilepsy, you know, not exactly sure, but a traumatic brain injury, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Um, and we don't talk about that. And I think part of that, too within the work of disability studies is to be like why why haven't um black folks been able to claim disability as an identity or to talk about Mm -hmm. their disabilities or impairments and that's partially because of the way that blackness has always been understood as disability right that we are disabled in relationship to white folks so you can't claim your disability like you're already considered lesser than you don't want to advertise even Mm -hmm. more difference Mm -hmm. um so I think that for me part of shifting the conversation in disability studies at least is to say like yes we can acknowledge that black folks have kind of distanced themselves from disability um rhetorically in a lot of ways but we have to read that in the context of white supremacy that has forced that kind of disidentification um and so to read it differently and to not read it antagonistically is like what I'm trying to do is just go back to look at things to be like, no, it's here. It's just not being said in the same way, or they might be using language that is considered outdated or ableist, but the actual politics, the things they're trying to do, the changes they're trying to make are 100% anti-racist and anti-ableist. Right. Um, so doing that work is it's, yeah, that's where, where my passion is right now. Cause I, I always just assumed it kind of wasn't there and yeah. it just, no one else was looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> Nikita, hold on a second, Nikita. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. I just, go ahead. Cause uh, you're going to forget. No, cause uh, you just use a term um, and that you use it in your essay. So can you say a little bit more about what the term dis- disidentification means? I think it's a really important. Yeah. So disidentification comes from um, Jose Munoz, um, who is who passed away, but amazing um, queer, queer of color scholar and does queer of color critique. Um, and disidentification is used as a way to talk about how particularly marginalized people um, look at a majoritarian kind of representation so of of womanhood or of femininity and take some of that and leave some of it behind so rather than a full rejection or complete assimilation Mm -hmm. picking and choosing parts of it um, as a survival method of being like this is hailing to me in some ways but not others and I'm going to adapt it Um, and so for me I think a lot about femme right like femme identities in queer communities as like a disidentification with traditional femininity Um, that yeah Yes, I might have some things on my body that look like what you expect from like, I don't know, I like a little little swing dress, like a uh-huh. 1950s swing uh-huh. dress. 
But I'm also going to have on like some earrings that have like the middle finger up yeah. and I'm going to have Afro puffs yeah. and that Doc Martens on. That's going to be my look. Or um, So just because I have something that appears in this traditionally feminine way doesn't mean that I am adhering to femininity. Not yes. that straight cis women are always adhering, mm-hmm. but when you are a marginalized person, you are making that choice more consciously and you're making those choices more for um, both survival and attempt at recognition within your communities. Um, so yeah, so to disidentify with something means yeah to look at it and be like not not quite that, but yes yes a little bit. And so I think Black folks have disidentified with disability and come up with other ways of thinking about it or talking about it that yeah. aren't quite the same as the disability pride. Although there are plenty of folks yes. now who claim disability with pride, and that's yeah. great. But I don't think that claiming a disability identity is essential to a black disability politics. This is like so epic because like you, you just touched on the question that I was going to try to get in before Nikita's is like, um, <laughs> you, you had this line. Oh my gosh. Bars. And, um, it, I think it was like in your intro about like terms can't simply be just for like rhetorical stand-ins or like purposes, but to do the actual theoretical work. And it just makes me think so much about how people mm-hmm. try to act like black folks don't have like a rich like rhetorical history or like um like we do these things rhetorically that that are specific to black culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think about growing up with words like um like they're special or they're touched or something like that. Like that that are really talking about like neurodivergence, mm-hmm. cognitive disabilities, um, even maybe mental health disorders, you know, and it's like so it's not that we're not doing it. And then mm-hmm. also to think about like these things is like ableist is under um under all these systems of oppression, right? Like everything black folks do gets like like demonized or criminalized. And it's like, no, these are these are the ways that we've learned to talk about it mm-hmm. and and deal with it within community. Yeah. And I think that dealing with it within community is is the big thing, right? That if you were you or someone you loved were marked as like having a psychiatric disability, for example, Mm -hmm. like you could be put away, put away um, forever. And so you're not trying to be out there and be like black and mentally disabled in public. Um, So people really try, you know, try to protect ourselves from the state. Um, So we've just had a different relationship relationship. to to particularly to mental disability and to mental health and wellness right which you know right right? we don't have access to to care and haven't had access to care in the same ways which means mental disability has been dealt with differently in black communities um and differently in latinx communities right like all of our communities of color um have dealt with it differently because of our relationship to state and that includes like the prison industrial complex and the medical industrial complex right like not especially now um particularly now yeah yeah and i made like this uh commitment to myself last episode to like do more stuff around um like police violence like specifically police violence when we talk about state violence Mm -hmm. and um like this conversation with you is making me think about all the overlaps because of me being a therapist but also like, so we talked about, like, uh, police violence with queer folks, but also that um, I think the percentage is something like 40% of people of color who are 
um, like murdered by the police are folks with disabilities. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's huge, right? And so it's not mm-hmm. just a racial component, but what does it mean to be like interfacing with these uh, violent state systems if you can't like hear yeah. or if you are having a spell or like, uh, you know, the only the only resource we have to deal with like mental health crises is to call 911. Yeah. Then the police show up, you know? So it's like, exactly. yeah. And in, in communities of color, we've had to learn how to navigate that different. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there are, I mean, there are so many stories, but there are stories of people who have called, you know, the police for help, like for themselves and then ended up being hurt or exactly. killed. Like they knew yep. they needed help. Mm-hmm. And this was the only help available at a certain point um, is through the police. So, I mean, definitely, of course, I am very pro people finding other ways of having um, community mental health crisis um, workers, right? Folks who can do this work, who do not have guns, who are not taking people away to police stations and to jails. I mean, that's the other statistic is I think, um, you know, the the majority of folks who are in psychiatric institutions are actually in in prisons um and are in psych wards there Mm -hmm. so that's we have more people who are in prison psych wards than in actual like mental health facilities facilities, Mm -hmm. um as non-prisoners um so we know that these systems overlap in really, really dangerous ways um, for disabled people. Of oh color. my gosh, we could talk about this all day, but we really want to get to other parts. Okay, <laughs> you just, you just are just so wide ranging. I think this obviously speaks to like the way you write theory and do theory. Um, but Nikita, you want to jump into like the Twitter questions because you know your Twitter is theory in action. So, <laughs> so, um, well, there, so we have two questions. So. Well, so the first one is, okay, so you do this work in the academy and, you know, you're writing, you're working, you know, working and teaching in the academy, but you like, you also have popping on Twitter, a a bomb ass banging Twitter, Twitter fingers, fire, (laughs) (laughs) and you do like more popular mainstream uh, writing. So, I mean, there's like the general question, why Mm -hmm. is this important to you? And then I guess... Another question that uh, we're wondering is, who are your intended audiences in both of those realms? Yeah, so this is kind of new for me. I think, again, I mentioned earlier that, like, all I ever wanted to do was do creative writing and teach creative writing to like encourage folks to use their voices, find their voices, feel heard. Um, And so I've always wanted to work outside of academic spaces. It just happens that this worked out for me. I never really thought it would. Um, I think it really is in the past two years as the book was coming out that I was like, oh, I guess I did it. Like, I guess, I guess this is going to be it. (laughs) It worked out. Um, So it took me a while to realize it, but I've always wanted to reach broader audiences. I want to make sure that I know that college is expensive. I know that not everybody has access to these resources of, you know, being in my classroom. Um, So I want to put it out in the larger world, particularly because I work for this state institution that pays me well enough that I can do some free labor in the world, you know, so I don't have to make my money on public writing because I I make a, a decent wage um, working for the state of Wisconsin. Thank you, state of Wisconsin. Um, so I, I am able to do that work. And it's really 
it's important to me because I learned so much from um, accessible feminist writing um, early on. Like that's how I came into my politics was like reading like bell hooks, you know, like picking up a cheap copy of Feminism is for Everyone and being able to read this thing that was written in an accessible manner that for me, as someone who was raised Catholic and was trying to figure out how to align like the values I was raised with and the things that I was thinking about the world, having these kind of early, accessible, clearly written things, it helped me slowly get better. Um, You know, I feel like we're always learning. I feel like, you know, my understanding of the prison industrial complex has really only been in the past probably three years that I've had a really solid understanding like I've always been like I think it's not good but like it took me a while to understand it fully and connect it into a larger history so for me that public work is to help people get those those first threads because I remember starting college and still being like I wish that there was a way for me to be like not pro-abortion but not but still feminist like what does that mean and it took me a while to like come to like reproductive justice to be like well what you want is a world where people don't feel like they're forced into situations that they actually have lots of choices around their reproduction which starts with like sex ed and starts with access to birth control right it starts long before anybody's pregnant um so it took me a while to get there and I'm hoping that I can do Some of that work for folks, the work that I do for my students all the time in the classroom and help them work through these ideas that other folks are only able to get by logging into Twitter because they're not going to be on a college campus. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this leads to our next question. Um, You had a really, really good thread a while ago about learning in public. And um, so, like, yes, I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, a lot of us are on Twitter and we like, you see, like somebody like says something, they misspeak or or sometimes. Nikita has been mad about this tweet. Oh, I was trying not to bring it up. I was really trying to be diplomatic. Let's just do it. Okay. So this, this person, bless her heart, (laughs) said that most, I'm going to try to quote it. She said, Quote, most homosexual blacks identify with their sexuality and not their race. And then, what? I mean, it was ridiculous. You know, yeah. it was absurd. And then people were like, girl, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and so then she was like, um, well, I just raised a point. I didn't say whether I agree with it or not. And I'm like, you have no empirical data yeah. backing up. And I'm like, I know from being a decade of a black queer that this is not correct. And yeah. I'm like, and there are studies that would demonstrate otherwise. But what more than like picking on this little girl and her bad little hot take, it's like a lot of times on social media, people you like, they say something, it's not correct. And then once even presented with new information, they still double down. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really gets that to your point about um, learning in public. So can you say more about, um, like what what you were getting at in in that thread and we have a follow-up question after that yeah so I don't know this came to me I think from seeing one of those moments of seeing I think it was when Terry Cruz was saying this stuff about how children need 
both gendered parents Mm -hmm. and people were like no no here's why here's why what you're saying is wrong and he just like kept doubling down um and versus what i've seen with some other you know higher like celebrity folks who have said like oh i messed up um that learning in public i think with social media right now, we're constantly doing it. We're constantly having people tell us like, oh, this doesn't attend to this or you're leaving this thing out. And being willing to step back from that first initial moment of, oh shit, I messed up, right? Um, Because it's amazing how many folks respond to being corrected, even gently with anger, with a lot of anger. And I think it actually comes from embarrassment because you, you made a mistake in public. Um, And so for me, this idea of learning in public is being willing to say, Hey, I didn't always know this. I know this now. I'm going to try to be better. Um, Maybe say sorry if what you said was like hurtful to people, but mostly just be like, hey, I messed up. Um, And maybe that means deleting a tweet. Maybe that means replying to it to say, hey, actually, I messed up up there, but I'm going to leave this so that the conversation that unfolded afterwards and the resources that people, you know, added are still there. Um, And I'm trying really hard to to learn in public. So the example I used in that thread was literally just one day I forgot my laptop and I was teaching a lecture class of 240 people. And so I was using a a Mac instead of a PC and I like couldn't figure out how to scroll. And these, these students were looking at me like, what is wrong with this person? They don't know how to use a computer. And I like had to take a moment to be like, you know what? I'm just learning how to do this in front of other people. It's a little uncomfortable. It's a little embarrassing, but it's okay to not know something um, and to not get upset with the people who are just really trying to teach you. Um, and of course, on social media, not everyone is trying to teach you. Sometimes people are just trying to to shame you. And sometimes maybe you should be shamed for the things that you say. Should be a little embarrassed. But um, when people are genuinely just like, that is incorrect. Here is the correct information. Here is a link to explain this to you. Um, you got to slow down and take that in. Um, and... Shireen Carruthers in her book, Unapologetic, she talks about this of like, we all have to learn. We didn't know. There was a point where I knew nothing about disability, right? And now I'm like a leading scholar in the field, but I didn't all, I wasn't born knowing this. Um, and I still say things that are wrong. I still have to get corrected sometimes. Um, and I take that. I just, I take that in and try to be very public about a learning process because, you know, I think especially as a person who's trying to do public intellectual work and has a PhD, people will say like, oh, you're, you're elitist and you think you're better than us. And I'm like, no, I can still learn from people. Um, I learn from my students all the time um, because they're on the cutting edge of things sometimes. (laughs) So um, we got to keep I got to keep learning. Um, So I hope that I can share my knowledge and that other people are going to share their knowledge with me. And like, we're all just going to keep getting better. I feel like that's fundamentally it. I'm like, aren't we all just trying to keep getting better all Uh the time? Yeah. And especially around like um, social identity, identity politics, black feminism, like this disability studies, like it's always changing and growing because it's, it's, you know, it's like, that's the nature of these social theories. So we, it never stops. It's not like you arrive at a place 
mm-hmm. and you you've done with your black feminist disabilities <laughs> like like critique you know it's right. like always growing <laughs> and changing um and then i okay so we had another question around like do you have yes. any suggestions for like specific strategies on how to um how to effectively like help someone learn in public or maybe like I, yeah wanna- so it depends on who it is, right? Mm-hmm. If it's like on Facebook and it's one of my friends, I will send a yeah. private message. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put you on blast if I if I actually know you. Um, so I think that's one thing is first and foremost, like be willing to approach people um, in your life um, and not just kind of hope that someone else is going to handle it. But if it's something like Twitter where it's real public, um, I try to be clear that I'm not angry, that I'll be like, hey just so you know, like, I think this is wrong, but try not to go straight to this is trash, you're trash (laughs) kind of space. (laughs) Um, Even though there are moments where I'm like, this is trash. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I try not to start there. Like I try to assume some goodwill on the part of that person and try to demonstrate my goodwill in the language that I use, like throw some emojis in there to be like, look, I'm not trying to come for you. I'm just trying to tell you as a friend, this is wrong, right? And you might want to, you might want to fix that thing that you're doing in public in front of a whole bunch of people. Um, And if folks are responsive to that, that's great. Um, Sometimes they're not. Um, One thing that I've started doing on my Twitter is I will, I've been using this hashtag collect your cousins. Um, And I do that for white people where I'm like, this white person isn't listening to me. If like other white people want to come collect your cousin, you can try to, you can try to deal with this. Um, And sometimes that works. Sometimes it takes like another nice white lady talking to a nice white lady to get her to understand it. And she'll explain it in a way that I wouldn't have thought of right um so that to me is also the value of learning in public in terms of social media is that sometimes someone who either has life experiences like you who can explain it in a different way or just honestly looks like you that you're like okay Uh this person's on my side they're not coming for me I'll listen to them. So, um, I mean, in an ideal world when social media isn't just people being trash, like you can call each other in and have a conversation. And when you're not the right person to have the conversation, people connected to you might be able to be the right one. So I will sometimes be like, is there anyone willing to like explain what's wrong to this person? Like, is anyone willing to kind of step up and have this conversation? And I've seen people like say that they're going to shift off the DM and they'll like have a DM conversation with somebody else. Um, So I think, yeah, that willingness um, to do it and to be gentle. I don't always have the patience for it. It depends on the day, but it is something that I try. I try real hard to do. If someone seems to be coming from a place of sincerity, um, of saying like, I genuinely don't know. I'm genuinely asking, even if the question is something that I'm like, I can't believe you have to ask that. But if it seems genuine, I will try to, I try to, if I have the time and energy, um, to engage with it because yeah, I've had to ask the questions. Like I've had to be the one learning before. Um, and I, I want people to believe that I'm, I'm trying. Um, I think most recently there was something where I was tweeting about friendship as romance, um, which to me is like a queer polyamorous person. Like I think of my friendships as very romantic, but then there were people that were like, this is really like messed 
up for aromantic people. And I like had, it took me a while to get there that I was like, okay, maybe I needed to say that a little bit differently um, because I don't know a lot about aromantic people, you know? And so it, I had to go do some reading and, and have a moment of thinking and not just have my knee jerk reaction of like, you're overreacting to this thing that I mm-hmm. said, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Huh. You, you want, you want me to go first? You're looking at me. <laughs> now I'm talking to the keto. She, I was just going to say, this feels like a good time to go into it, our, it is. our next question. Okay. So if it's okay, we have, we just have some, you know, curved chronicle, um, flourishing and frolicking questions about like dating in real life as like, uh, fat black queer women in the academy. Um, what is that experience like? Yeah. But I, I, I almost wanted to ask you to like say a little bit more about um, like your thread around friendship, like uh, romantic yeah. friendships as a form of romance. Because it's like, huh, this sounds. We did a yeah, a, like way back we did like <laughs> this bay or buddy episode with our dear dear friend Cash, and I always feel like I go back to that conversation, like. Like, yeah, friendship, yeah. situation. I think that friendship is romantic. Yeah. I think, um, for me, a good friendship has romantic feelings. Mm-hmm. Like, I get a little bit of butterflies yes. and excited to yeah. see my friend when I haven't seen them in a while. And I mm-hmm. get warm feelings when I think about them. Um, and for me, um, and this for me comes out of both, like, queerness and queer community, but also polyamory, is that I have a lot of really close, intimate friends. I haven't had sex with all of them, but I definitely like have been naked with all of them, have slept in a bed with all of them. Like I have had this kind of level of intimacy where, you know, people come help me when I'm sick and, you know, I cat sit for them or watch their kids. And um, it's a real like family kind of thing in the way that I treat my inner circle of friends. Um, So to me, that is romantic and valuable um and I think my tweet had been responding to someone that was like friendship is better than romance and I was like no friendship is romance (laughs) it is and I was you know in my thread I was like I feel sorry for you if your friendships aren't romantic like my friends like buy me gifts and take me out to dinner sometimes to celebrate with me and we do things for each other um and go on dates and like really devote time to one another so yeah I I think that it's really important. Um, but I think that's also, it's a very queer thing, right? You know, um, when I, I was doing the apps, I am on the apps again. Um, but you know, a lot of the people that I met on the apps and on dates sometimes would not become sexual partners, but they became really good friends. I mean, the very first person I went on a date with, um, in Albany, which I used to work in Albany, New York. Um, the very first person I met on OkCupid when I met there is still one of my closest friends. So I think, um, queer women in particular, that kind of line can be a little, a little looser that you're like, maybe we'll have sex or maybe we'll be friends or maybe we'll go back and forth between those things. Who knows? (laughs) But yep, yep, it's all yeah. open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, uh, couples couples therapy <laughs> research supports that. <laughs> yeah, like we tend to like stay in community with like past lovers, current lovers. Mm-hmm. Friendships become relationships. Relationships become friendships. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, and I think when you have um, as many kind of multiply marginalized identities as I have, as we have, but also when you have the kind of politics that we have, you can't be throwing out people like there's not enough of us. (laughs) You got to keep people around you. So even if uh, you're not having sex with somebody anymore, like you want them around because they are a good person and hopefully you you want good people in your life no matter kind of how your physical relationship with them is um so yeah i definitely try to keep people around and in my life this is also somehow making me think about how so much so many of our identity labels at least get like constructed um in, in, like, resistance or opposition to, like, the outside world or the way the status quo is going. Because mm-hmm. when I think about, like, friendships being romantic um, and then maybe, like, this response from, like, aromantic folks is, like, because we only think about romance in this, like, hot, steamy, straight, um, um, like, non-platonic way that it almost feels threatening to think about romance as, like, intimate connection that like supports you in a friendship. Mm. Yeah. And that's, I, again, I am still very much learning in terms of asexual and aromantic folks. Um, but for me, yeah, the way that I understand and define romance, um, I think is much more broad than what sometimes I, I read. Um, because I really do think of romance as like an, a kind of emotional intimacy. Um, so I think that, yeah, struggling with what that means, the definition of it. But to me, I'm like, I get butterflies when I think about the people that I love. And that doesn't necessarily mean the people I'm having sex with. You know, I have I have a I have two long distance partners um, that I met when I was in grad school and we've stayed together. Um, but obviously I have left uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and one of them has left now as well. Um, so for me, dating, I've tried the apps. I've had varying levels of success on it. Um, but I generally tend to meet people through friendship circles. Um, So, you know, I'll go to a queer dance event and I'll meet people there. Um, Or I will go to some recent friends that I made. I met because we were going to a No Cops at Pride protest. And afterwards, they were like, do you want to go get a drink? I was like, yeah, I want to get a drink. (laughs) Like, that's how we started hanging out. Like, got a drink after a protest. You know, so um, and I feel like I've heard you all mention this like at on a on an episode as well that like we tend to meet in the spaces where people share identities and politics with us because my experience on the app the thing that I find most exhausting is that the first thing I have to do is be like okay do you believe any of these things like did you vote for Trump like I I can't deal with that like um, my favorite question right now Mm -hmm. to ask is um, black lives matter or all lives matter and their answer will tell me everything I need to know. Um, and the number of people who will, will still be like, well, I think you want me to say Black Lives Matter, but I really think it's All Lives Matter. And I'm like, good. Okay, well, bye-bye now. <laughs> good. You know, so I have to do this, like, political weeding out because, uh, yeah, I can't I can't get turned on by somebody who says All Lives Matter. Can't do that. 
Oh my gosh, that is so funny you said that because I was just thinking the pum pum no turn up if like <laughs> if you don't politically agree, uh-huh. you know, it's like, so, it just can yeah. happen. <laughs> so yeah, meeting people in regular spaces. Although I did just I went on a date uh, earlier this week off of Tinder um, with a woman that she was like, oh no, I've seen you at events before, and like I showed your profile to like my friends at the feminist bookstore in town who all knew who you were and thought you were cute and so I was like yeah it's just like dating within the same little community um so even like that uh using tinder as a way to kind of meet the people that have seen me around but I'm not you know I didn't see them which I always tell people particularly in Madison nobody in Madison look like me it's unfair it is unfair if you are a white queer person with a side shave to be like I've seen you before and I'm like well you look like 17 people here so right right yes nobody looks like me it's not fair you can't be like you didn't notice me I'm like well maybe I did but or it was that other person I I don't know I just took out my faux locks when I was walking around with like uh, uniform (laughs) colored faux locks and I'm like come on now (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) of course of course people are gonna notice you like so right right but yes um so that's how dating has kind of worked for me and then you know as a poly person that's the other thing I have to work out is like are you okay with non-monogamy are you gonna be the jealous type the possessive type um I have no interest in marriage or kids or cohabitating so that all those things, it uh, it's a narrow field at that point. But if I find somebody who's okay with those things, it's pretty great. It's pretty fun. Um, but that's why, for me, the apps don't tend to be super, super useful unless I'm just looking for, like, a hookup because there's so many things that I need somebody to be on board with in terms of their their politics and then their, the way they they have relationships. I also am like a real direct communicator. And that's something that I think is, is hard for people. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. I can be very blunt and people don't mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I know all about that. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you Nikita? I, I'm saying multiple realms. I, I, for me though, I feel like direct communication is a deep sign of care and respect for people because it's like I'm, I'm. I need you to know exactly what's happening, exactly how I feel, mm-hmm. so we can try to move forward. Yep. Yeah. But you know, people be you know, in shambles, mm-hmm. in tears, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I feel like if I am communicating with you directly, clearly, and very honestly, it means that I trust that you can handle this. I trust you that you are an adult, um, that you will communicate back to me if I have done something that upsets you. Um, but yeah, that holding that, those things and, I think in particular that you can be like, I like you, but I don't want to date you. Um, I think that's sometimes a thing that people don't want to hear, don't understand um, that I'm like, I just don't feel like we're on in the same place. Um, And I'm, I'm busy. Um, Particularly this past year after the book came out, I was doing like one to two talks a month and people don't like when you're like, well, this was a great date. I'll see you in seven weeks. Like mm, people don't like that. Yeah. 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 So as I'm sure, you know, Dr. Shalk, it's pride month. It is. So 
What advice, tips, tidbits, or suggestions would you give to a young queer walk or queer pock person? You know, just coming into their identity or mm-hmm. what have you. Any, any, what are your top tidbits? Yeah. Um, one, definitely find your, find your queer guru. Like, find that person Aww. that you're like, that person's got it together. And just try to be their friend. Don't try to have sex with them. <laughs> just try to be their friend. <laughs> because I think that we all have that. Like, I feel like there are people in our communities that were like, they're great. And if you just try to, like, hang out with them a little bit, you'll start to learn about how they came into themselves. Um, I believe that like courage is contagious, right? So if you're around people that seem courageous that are doing things that you're like, I couldn't imagine, you know, like wearing that in public or doing that thing or saying that, like go be around that person because that person, it's gonna, it's gonna catch on um, because you're attracted to something in that. And I think when I was, you know, early in my queerness, I think I thought attraction to those things meant I wanted to date those people. And really it was Mm -hmm. like, no, I wanted Mm -hmm. to be those people. Like I wanted, (laughs) I wanted that energy. Um, And so finding more people to be around you that encourage that, you know, Um, recently I, I bought like this jumpsuit that didn't fit me and I gave it to a friend and uh, it's like, you know, it's, it's pretty sheer. Like you're going to see all of that person's body when they're in it. And she was like, I don't know. I don't know if I could wear it. And then I was like, you should definitely wear that. Like 100%, you should wear that, wear it to my birthday party. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like sometimes you need somebody to be like, nah, do that. Um, so yeah, I think finding people who encourage you to be brave and to be bold and surrounding yourself with those people, um, are really important. Um, and And then I think the other thing for me is to remember that everyone's queer journey and queer narrative is different. Um, I, for me, coming from like a Catholic community, I, I really thought that like, oh, everyone must have had to be like so secretive about their queerness growing up. And everyone must have this kind of relationship to um, to religion if you're a queer person. And like all queer people have been rejected by their family. And then I meet people who were like, I was raised by lesbians. And I was like, so so no rejection from your f- family for being queer? No? Oh, okay. <laughs> like, so I think not making assumptions about your your journey of queerness being somehow the same as everyone else's or other people following the same path. Um, because I see that for some of my students in the pressure for people to be out and to be out in particular ways, um, that I'm like, no, not everybody's journey to outness is the same thing. Like, I don't have a coming out story exactly because I never really, I just kind of started making out with girls sometimes. <laughs> And then eventually my friends were like, is that a thing you do? And I'm like, sure is. And they were like, all right, well, there you go. Um, But I never came out to my family, you know, Um, and I don't have that kind of story. I just went away and was queer. Um, And slowly Mm -hmm. I became more public about it, like on social media. And I stopped trying to hide it. But there was never a point where I like sat my family down and said something. Um, And my family is, you know, 
no one really talks about it, but no one rejects it. And we just kind of, it's fine. Um, and I think that's particularly true for um, folks who don't come from more like middle-class backgrounds too, that I think sometimes queer folks are accepted in, in different ways. Um, and it doesn't look like the acceptance of like, now your family all wears rainbows. Like that's never going to happen. Um, but I brought both of my partners to my mom's wedding last summer, you know? Um, so, but my mom would never talk about, about that, you know. Um, I think last couple years ago, I was telling her right after the election, some of my family are Trump voters. Um, and I was thinking about not coming home for Christmas and telling her I was feeling less comfortable around my extended family. And she said, Is that because you say you're queer? And I was like, Well, almost, mom. Like, you were almost <laughs> there. It's not that I say no, that I'm queer. <laughs> But, you know, she doesn't, she loves me, but sometimes the way she talks about it is, I'm just like, that's a weird way of saying that I like women. Um, Like, you say you're queer. Um, So, yeah, I think not not assuming that people's journeys are the same um, and being willing to kind of figure out, let people get where they need to be when they get there. Um, I think particularly for me, I've seen this a lot on, on gender identity that folks that I knew, um, as lesbians or as queer folks are now identifying as either trans or non-binary and like not negate, like that's their, that's their queer journey. And it's different than what mine is and not kind of trying to keep people on the same path. That's why I'm really excited by all the queer media that's coming out these days, like the Hulu and Netflix shows that I'm like, oh, we're getting more complicated queer stories and not just mm-hmm. the simple coming mm-hmm. out stories that I feel yeah. like yep. um, are great. And But it's I'm interested in like these adult complex queers, que- queer narratives, not just lesbian and gay, but like queer narratives. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I just love everything you just right. said. But like wow. that like courage <laughs> is contagious and That was a um, word right yes, there. Yes. And that like finding a queer guru. Wow. This is amazing. This yeah. has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's like you you know, you you know <laughs> that people are incredible, like right. through their work, but like just to have this conversation with you is just like you're you you truly are like a light on this earth. Truly. Yes. Oh, I am so glad that you all asked me to be on this because I I love the show so much. I feel like y'all put so much like good political education in the world, but also your friendship is just like it's the kind of friendship that I have where I'm like I mess around and tease and tell my <laughs> friends I hate them like. <laughs> These are, we have these friendships where you can tell how much y'all love each other, but you're also not, you're, you're real with one another and disagree sometimes. And I just, I love the modeling of friendship that you have on top of, um, the really like good educational stuff. You're that Kamala Harris episode. I learned so much. I was like, Oh good. Now I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I really uh yeah. Thank you. That really great. means a lot. It really does, you know. Truly. Mm. Oh boy. 
And especially doing this while doing your PhD, that's yeah. it's incredible that you are continuing to do this work and put it out so often and it's such a high quality while still getting your PhD. Like I'm just now going up for tenure and I feel like I can finally have the freedom to do more public work. Um, so the fact that you've been doing this so consistently is it's incredible. You have quite the hustle. Yeah. So she does that. this, makes shea butter, she used to do hair. She sews her own clothes. I don't know. I don't know what she had. I just, wow. Well, mm-hmm. I'm definitely gonna hit you up to be my queer guru. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Doctor Shop. Yeah. Thank you. So oh, much. thank you for having me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, words, right? Words it is, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, money keeps teasing me that I'm not a believer, but I feel like I got my church today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we hope that that interview with Dr. Sammy was as mind-blowing for yeah. you all as it was for us yeah we really enjoyed it um but now we're gonna move on along to curved chronicles where we talk about the dating woes and wins of our lives yes and so this is just gonna be a call to action for y'all to submit your curved chronicles because we are going to do a all, all curves all, all the, the time. time episode to end out pride month um, and we just want to hear your dating stories that you think you would want to share with the Queer Walk community. Maybe questions you have about dating. Yeah. We, we got into that with uh, with Sammy because it's like, yeah, that's really what Curve Chronicles is all about. It's like, we just want to talk about what it's like to love and live as Queer Walk. women of color. Yeah. yeah. So um, I know some of you kind of DM me and was like, I don't really have like a Curved Chronicle. Like, being shut down in the ways that I be getting curved all the time. But <laughs> but y'all could st- still send your dating experiences that you think would be kind of cool. Um, what's what's the, the app landscape like in your area? What's the best date you ever went on? Oh, my gosh. What's the best date you ever went on? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. How do you celebrate an anniversary? Yeah. I want to hear about that. Because I never have. But like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, but send, go ahead and send us your Curve Chronicles. You can do so by either using the hashtag QueerWOC, and it doesn't have to be like a big thing. You can just tweet it or put, put it in your Instagram story, and we will see it because we follow the hashtag. You can DM us a Curve Chronicle, or you can send them on over to QueerWalkPod at gmail.com. So tell us about dating and loving as QueerWalks slash QueerPox. Yeah? All right. I think that's everything. That's show, yeah. Yeah. Whew. So. Jam-packed. For real. So this has been Money, the lock fetish lesbian. And this has been Nikita, the butch boyardee. <laughs> and you just listened to Queer Walk, the podcast. With editorial support from Ahmad Saeed. <laughs>